0: Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family, the Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald.
1: Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. I am your one star host, Chris Trevino. And as always, joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, as a man named Hurricane, do you have any advice for the coming rain that Southern California is about to have? No, because Hurricane is from Southern
2: California, so we don't deal with rain and wind advisories and flash flood advisories. Listen, the last time we actually had a real hurricane hit Southern California, we got, like, no rain and no wind, so – I'm a little bit skeptical, you know, when they start saber rattling about the weather in Southern California. All I know is it's, it's definitely gotten more humid because we were chilling the past few weeks. And like last night I went to bed and I hate humidity. This is why I could never really live in the South. Like I have no issues with anything but the humidity in the mosquitoes. Like I just can't deal with those two things. But I was sweating last night out here in IE because we had a big jump in the humidity and I could feel it now. And I'm not even in
1: the garage. He's not in the garage, folks. But rain aside, Gerard, are you excited to see me this weekend? We're going to be at the Pylon event. It'll be our first time covering something together in quite some time. First time I've seen him since our live National Signing Day back in 2023. So aren't you excited to be reunited? I've changed so much over that time. (laughs) You'll hardly recognize me. But, uh, yeah, I
2: mean, Chris has been taking off, you know, not really doing a whole lot since 2024. He's still chilling, you know, getting ready for signing day, big signing day. Big old signing day. (laughs) Big old signing day. USC might have a signee uh, that's uh, going to commit. We'll talk about that here in the podcast. But, uh, yeah, it will be the first event, I think, for you, 2024, if I'm correct.
1: Yes, it will be the first of it. Look, the season is very—I don't want to say rough, but it's—it's—it's a—it's uh, it's an it's intensive long. and long thing that I have to endure. You know, traveling, doing the late-night podcast, also doing recruiting Friday nights. It's—it's it's a long thing, so I just kind of ease into the uh, off-season beginnings with the uh, the seven-on-sevens and the camps and the showcases, whatever. So this will be my first one, but I'm easing into it, but you'll be there. Five stars only JP will be there. Connor's gonna come out for a day. So we'll be full full the first time the four of us have been covering an event together. So I'm very excited to see everyone and you know cover something finally in a recruiting sense. and then we'll come back next week and we'll talk about it. Gerard, maybe we'll have some commitments to talk about. maybe just maybe just one because yes signing day technically is next week. We'll we'll get into that a little bit, but before we jump into the heart of our show, the start of our show, just a quick shout out to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. You know her, you love her, one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com and check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. At Meredith Real Estate, check out all the postings and listings that she has going on with the Southern California Real Estate Market. Gerard, cold open, pretty simple for us. USC hosted their first official Junior Day event of 2024, of the off-season. So obviously, we're going to talk about that. We're going to start there. It wasn't a, I wouldn't say super deep, super big kind of event, but there were some in headliners. You know, We talked about it last week. We kind of previewed it with a Jakeem Stewart coming to town, the 2026 five-star defensive lineman out of Louisiana, number one defensive lineman in 2026. Helaman Kasuga, the one of the top signal callers in 2026 with the lane wide open with Julian Lewis reclassifying to 2025. Now he is kind of the, the main guy for Lincoln rally in 2026. There are some other top guys there. Christian Thatcher, Carson Cox, the local running back they just offered. So, there was there was some talent some local talent some talent from out of out of state and we got a crystal ball off the visit so uh, just a little nice nice little start to the recruiting period of 2024 and gearing us up for 2025.
2: Yeah, not a whole lot of news coming from the junior day and you wondered if USC might push for some commitments even out of the 2026 class but it seems as of right now, they are taking the same pace as they did for the 2024 class. So we're going to see that can change in the blink of an eye. It can change with one weekend visits, but they do seem to be taking their time. I think out of the entire weekend, maybe the biggest recruit that USC had on campus was Carson Cox, uh, the six foot two hundred pound running back out of Asperia Oaks Hills High School, and leading up to this weekend, he gets offered a scholarship from USC. And we talked about it last week. It wasn't an ordinary scholarship because he had already had a very good relationship with USC running backs coach, Kyle McDonald. And so USC had been recruiting him for quite a while and there was rapport there. This wasn't the type of scholarship offer that you make to say, hey, how you doing? We wanna make a good first impression. That impression was made long ago. And so when you talk to Carson, and I spoke to him before the unofficial visit, right after he'd been offered a scholarship by USC, and I spoke to him post-visit, he's very serious about USC. And at one point, I think Washington had a pretty commanding lead in his recruitment. They got on him early with a scholarship offer, recruited him very hard. He had a very good relationship with the entire Washington staff. But obviously, that Washington staff is no longer there. And those coaches, a majority of them, are now at Alabama. And I don't think Alabama is going to recruit him as hard. Seeing what they have on their roster and the other players they have, I don't know if they're going to be as aggressive after Carson Cox as USC is being right now. So they put the full court press on him. He actually had a meeting on junior day with Lincoln Riley for about 45 minutes. So that tells me they're serious. And they want to convey to him – you know, his fit within the offense, which is very important to him. Uh, it's a local school. He grew up watching USC. He knows the USC roster right now, as he also knows the tradition of tailback you. So he's in a unique position where he's got a lot of people around him who obviously have followed USC over the years, and he himself has taken interest in the football program. You know, he can name the running backs. He talked about Marshawn Lloyd and Austin Jones last year but like the fact that Quentin Joyner still got some carries here and there and watch those guys play in practice. He went to a spring practice. So he knows what USC was and he knows what USC is. I think, you know, if we were still doing crystal balls, I would definitely put a crystal ball in for USC at this point. Now he has Oregon. He has Washington. ASU is another school that is pushing for him to get in on an unofficial visit He doesn't want to make a commitment until he takes his official visits. At least that's the plan right now. Now, whether that holds true or not, after he takes more unofficial visits, we'll see. Uh, And obviously, those unofficial visits can impact his opinion on schools. And maybe he becomes a little less decisive and more confused over the process, just talking to more coaches and, you know, seeing more. But right now, I think USC, they took the lead. Um, there was, you know, maybe a chance that he would commit and, you know, end it all right now. And like I said, he said before even coming in on the visit that he wanted to take his official visits. But you hear that, you know, you hear that from recruits and sometimes they just get that feeling and they kind of look at the situation. They go, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to end it right here. And then, you know, maybe a month down the line, they go, "Eh, maybe I want to still take official visits and they still do. So that really doesn't mean anything in terms of, you know, what your plans are today. You know, as a 17-year-old kid, your plans can be completely different uh, tomorrow. So uh, there was potential, you know, maybe he pulled the trigger there uh, after the junior day. But right now, he still wants to take those visits, particularly to Oregon and Arizona State. And we'll see how that plays out as we get later in the spring and he gets on campus again to watch USC. I just think, you know, and this goes for all recruits. The more you get him on campus, the more familiarity he has with the coaching staff and the players on the team, the more comfort he's going to have, and I think the better chance they're able to kind of push and and get him to be, uh, you know, he said I think the first commitment at running back that USC has had in like four years. And I, I mean, it hasn't really been four years technically. Raleigh Brown was a running back recruit, and he signed in the 2022 class, but he also kind of came to USC thinking he was going to be more of a receiver so maybe you know it's even longer you know you have to go back uh, to like christian um uh, uh well, why am i blanking on his name christian um the track kid from san diego that was keenan christian keenan christian yeah uh
1: he, you, you were know, close you were close
2: well i had christian down. i just couldn't yeah. remember the first name i
1: thought you were saying christian that's what was confusing me. well Kristen, christian christian
2: have... i i knew it was i knew it wasn't spelled like christian
1: i am it, christian
2: yeah but it was Kristen, but I was just trying to search for the first name. So I was saying it was a placeholder. But he said, Kristen, Christian, but the first name? Uh, you were going through me. those
1: files. You were going through those files in the file cabinet. you going through
2: those files, and the guy didn't uh, graduate from USC. He transferred out of USC. So it's like one of those things, ugh, into the trash bin. He gets lost. He gets, lost. He gets lost. What's the he next name? Lost. Carson Cox. Starts with a K, not with a C. So, yeah, that's um, kind of where things sit right now uh, with him. And I think, like I said, that was a very important uh, unofficial visit. Uh, Chuck McDonald, the cornerback slash nickelback from modern day, uh, who's been down to USC a bunch of times. That was an important unofficial visitor. Hayden Lowe, uh, the uh, big rush end, who's an interesting player because now you look at him as potentially more of as, as an outside linebacker in this defense. He's 6'4", 240, 245, uh, coached up by Greg Townsend, former USC Trojan. Uh, But a guy that, you know, he can put his hand on the ground and you look in certain defenses and say, okay, he should be a five technique with his hand on the ground. But in this defense, there's potential he plays in the two point stance and he likes that idea because of the versatility that's required to play that position. And that demonstrates and showcases your athleticism for the NFL, for the next level. And so he really, really liked what he heard from USC, had a really good conversation with Sean Nua. Uh, had a bit of a relationship with Sean Nua, but then met Coach Eric Henderson, who was kind of the star of of some of these sit downs yeah, and meetings uh, for USC, um, including uh, Sean Scott, who's an edge rusher for modern day out of the 2026 class, and again another guy who had a relationship with Sean Nua, but really spoke highly of Eric Henderson and certainly the resume and the players that Eric Henderson has coached in the NFL. And that was something that was big for him. And so, you know, really good first impressions along the defensive side of the ball, particularly. And like I said, I think with Carson Cox, that's kind of the name that you circle from this past week. And even though you don't get any public commitments, I think USC got everything but that from him.
1: Before I jump into my spiel, how far are you from Hesperia, Gerard? So I've only um, been to Hesperia once for up there to go to see, visit Jason Rodriguez, who played at Oak Hills, same place as Carson Cox. And it was a drive, let me tell you. So Yeah, it's still been a
2: drive for me. I want to say, I mean, in good traffic, I might be able to get up there in an hour. I, I don't really know. I, I don't go up there very often. But Barstow, Hesperia, Apple Valley, you know, that whole area up there, it's kind of like – a it's it's weird because it's segmented away from the IE. It's the desert, basically, um, but it's not it it it's its own thing, really. I I don't know what they call it. Like, there's got to be like a community under its own because those three cities, particularly, there's sort of a gap between the IE and that that area up there. Um, but I yeah, I haven't been up there to see a recruit in a while. I can't remember the last guy. I didn't see Jason Rodriguez up there. He came down here and he played against, I think it was Etiwanda. Oaks, Oaks Hills played Etowanda. Um And, you know, Apple Valley has been down here a few times. They played Ranch Cucamonga in the playoffs and they play Ranch Cucamonga uh, in uh, non-league games as well. So I've seen, you know, a few of those teams come down here, but I can't remember the last time I've actually been up there to watch a football game. It might happen this year though, because yeah, I don't know that uh, Oak Hills is playing anybody down this way. I know they're playing in Lancaster, but I don't know if they have any non-league games, which are going to actually be in the IE or be anywhere closer.
1: You missed it. Cause it feels like last year, I think they played Citrus Valley at Citrus Valley. That would have been a good one for you. So that's maybe. still a
2: drive though. I remember, remember we were talking about that one. I went out to go see uh Citrus Valley and you get it. There's Citrus Hill and there's Citrus Valley. Citrus Hill is Moreno Valley. Citrus Valley is out there in Redlands, and it's you, I, you know you just think Redlands that's IE and it's like it, that's an hour and a half almost. I mean that's a long drive to get out there, um, but that's a beautiful school, new area and everything. Um, so I saw them play. What was Shout, it was out it Shout out to Coach Bruick. Shout out to Coach Bruick. You know it's uh, uh, he's another program built. You know he he kind of. He, he he built um, East uh, Redlands East uh, Redlands East Valley. Is it East Valley also. Gosh, yeah, like everybody's got a valley, everybody's got a hill these days. Um, Jarupa Valley, Jarupa Hills. Like <laughs> everybody in the IE's got a hill or a valley. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, he was at yeah he was at Rev. I mean, we always just call it Rev, um, and uh, built that program up to be a contender, and then um, now he's hopped over there. To Citrus Valley, I don't know how long he's going to be at Citrus Valley. You know, he's kind of built it up, and I don't know how much more he can do with it. It's it's tough these days. You know, from a high school football standpoint, I don't know what the expectations are of public schools anymore. You know, I mean, outside of Centennial and maybe Long Beach Poly, because that was like a once upon a time. Obviously, you had so much talent at Long Beach Poly, but now you just have the Trinity leagues and and really just parochial schools. I mean, they've always recruited and they've always sort of stacked their rosters, but now it's like, I mean, they're going everywhere to get guys. You didn't see guys leaving ranch, Cucamonga and Fontana and Rialto to go to modern day. That was just too far. But nowadays, yeah, they just completely relocate. And um, there's a lot of those guys that end up at uh, modern day. There's even guys from like Carson in LA that end up at modern day. So yeah, I mean, it's tough to compete at the highest levels, uh, and I don't know what the expectation is. You know, are, are, are teams or schools' athletic directors satisfied with just being good in a smaller division? Like, you know, we, we're we good at what we do given the resources we have and the ability to track players that we have. You know, it, it's even with Mission Viejo, you can make that argument as well. And so, you know, there's there's – and, and trust me, right now, Mission Viejo, Centennial, all those schools, they are fighting off parochial schools for their players. Mission Viejo, especially. I don't know. We might have a little a little tidbit in the war room. I'm not sure if we were clear to put that out there, but yeah, there's some movement and it's tough being a public school
1: head coach in football in California. I apologize for this junior day talking talking point going off a little bit off the radar there with uh I just want to know how far you were from Hesperia Gerard uh my quick spiel on uh Junior Day you mentioned it Coach Henny Eric Henderson kind of being the the crown jewel of this visit uh you know it was his kind of debut for a USC recruiting event at home and as you were talking Gerard Coach Henny actually just followed me back on social media so I got that that win in my pocket before I talk about him but yeah, I talked to a lot of the 2026 guys, Meninoa Fapusa out of uh, Los Alamitos, Dutch Horace from Bosco, uh, Tomohini Tapui T- from uh, St. John Bosco, the big 2026 defensive tackle from Modern Day, four, consensus four-star top 100 player. They all you know, came away. This was their opportunity to sit down and meet with Coach Coach Henny, meet him for the first time, just get to know him a little bit because... Like I said, this was their first time meeting him, getting around the new staff, you know, Dance and Lynn. All of them had previous relationships with Sean Nua, so it was nice to, you know, go back and see Sean Nua. They all talked about, yeah, we love seeing Sean Nua again. But we also really like to just to chat up with the new coaches. So for this first weekend, as it will for, you know, multiple weekends throughout here early before the official visit starts, this was a good chance for the new staff to kind of just finally meet these guys in person at USC and kind of talk with them and you know just build that initial relationship you know for everyone besides Sean Nua, who had prior relationships with these guys. But everyone came away really excited about the new staff and excited with, with talking with Coach Henderson. And all of them told me that they expect to be back in the spring. Uh, the earliest they want to get back there is the spring, definitely. So, yeah, I think USC made a really good first impression with this defensive staff. Seemed to be defensive heavy. And we, like I mentioned, we did get a crystal ball out of this weekend. Not the unofficial hurricane crystal ball for Carson Cox, but a crystal ball for four-star linebacker, black, backer, blacker, blacker, backer. I can't say I'm losing it. <laughs> you actually mean yourself and then followed it up. <laughs> yeah, because I was trying to correct what I was saying, but I just repeated what I stumbled on. Well, thank Wine goodness Christian Thacher. Thatcher is actually white. Yeah, thank goodness Christian Thatcher is actually white. A fellow Christian, a consensus four star. We got a Blair Flair out of it with his crystal ball from Blair Angulo from the for the Las Vegas native Christian Thatcher, number two eighty-five in the composite, number twenty-seven linebacker in our rankings. But yeah, he put in a confidence level six for Christian Thatcher, who, you know, met with Coach Ens. Got his chance to really click with him. We knew he had a previous relationship with Coach Dante Lynn when he was at UCLA and really, really liked Coach Lynn when he was at UCLA. Now he's at USC, that obviously boosts the Trojans up. And uh, Christian Thatcher, we had a uh, Blair put up a story that with the quote from his visit, plus, you know, his reasoning for putting in a crystal ball, you can find that on our site. But yeah. USC looking like in a really good spot for a consensus four star linebacker in 2025. Maybe get the ball rolling a little bit.
2: Yeah, and it would be beneficial to get the ball rolling in Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, with Bishop Gorman and all the kids that they have there, USC has to have a presence in Arizona and Nevada, but particularly yeah. in Las Vegas because Bishop Gorman is becoming. I mean, it's always been a big talent pipeline for schools. Zachariah Branch, Zion Branch, two of the biggest recruits in their class, and we know how big Zach Branch has been to USC as a true freshman. So it is certainly a high school that produces a bunch of talent, but it is a high school that is becoming even more of a talent producer, particularly over the next few years, just looking at their linemen, uh, looking at, you know, some of the skill players they have. I mean, they were the maybe best high school football program in the nation last year. And so, yeah, that's going to be a place that USC has to circle. You know, Liberty's another school, Desert Pines. Uh, There's a few schools in the Las Vegas area. And Las Vegas is growing, you know, the suburbs and the areas like Summerlin and, uh, you know, Green Valley. Um, Henderson to some extent, Uh, but, you know, that Southern part of Las Vegas has grown quite a bit as is Arizona. And you have a lot of families that are moving from Southern California and they're moving those areas, but you also have a lot of influence from Texas and people actually moving out to Texas and going to Las Vegas. I don't know if that's going to continue, you know, property values are going up in in Vegas uh, pretty high over the past couple of years. And I don't know if that's really going to slow down, but nevertheless, it is certainly an, kind of a, 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 you know, an extension of Southern California to some extent, you know, I mean, it's a four hour drive. It's really not that far. It's less than an hour flight, which is the amazing thing. Like, I mean, flying in from Ontario airport from the IE to Las Vegas, it's like a 40 something minute flight. Like they don't even get the sodas and waters out because it's such a short flight. They give you your peanuts if you're <laughs> leaving the plane. So it's like the best flight ever. And so need that, that monorail. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. But anyways, that's uh, neither nor there. Um, as of right now, you can jump on a plane and you can be, you know, in L.A. in 50 minutes. And uh, that's that's awesome. You know, that's 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 a big deal. And so, yeah, having a presence at Bishop Gorman and, you know, we're talking about Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. They had a really, really good presence at Bishop Gorman for many, many years. Uh, they had Dave White there was a former coach at Bishop Gorman, and he was a part of the analyst staff and the admin staff at Oklahoma for another years. And they also hired down the road DeMarco Murray, who played at Oklahoma and was recruited out of Bishop Gorman High School. So Lincoln Riley knows that, you know, having a presence and having a foothold in at Bishop Gorman is as important, if not more important, than even modern-day or St. John Bosco. You know, I think all of those schools, the talent is so clogged up in terms of it's not spread out anymore. It's at a bunch of just different schools, um, but it's like a handful of them as opposed to you know, 25, 30. And it doesn't mean that you don't still have to go through and, and try to find other guys because you do. There, there, there are kids, more so in California probably than other schools, that pop up at high school's that people just don't really know about because California high school football is just not that hyped up. It's not a big deal out here. Um, It is in the Trinity league. It is at Bishop Gorman. It is at certain places where you have a bunch of talent, but there's tons of guys that fall through the cracks. And so you have to do your due diligence and make sure that you find those guys. And that's the one, you know, tip of the hat. I would definitely give to Sean Nua who is one of the only coaches on the staff that really has any co- West Coast connections, he's done a good job finding some of these guys. You know, he's kind of gone out there when you had guys like Alani Noah and uh, and Amos Talalele who, who kind of were overlooked. They were kind of guys that USC would not have recruited with Clay Helton. They would have gone over to East Texas or gone into Corpus Christi and offered a bunch of guys and taken a guy there that they probably never even saw play in person. So I think that's a big part of this also, uh, but nevertheless, I think the acknowledgement of, you know, Bishop Gorman, it, that's got to be looked at as a local school for USC. You know, you mm-hmm. cannot go, well, that's Nevada and blah, 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 and make those type of excuses. That's going to be a big time school for you. You need to be offering guys at that school and making sure that you have a pipeline to that school, just like you do at modern day in St. John Bosco and J Sarah, uh, et cetera. I, I think that's um like I said, To me, that has to be looked at as an extension of Southern California if you're
1: USC. All right, Gerard. I think that can parlay us into our second topic, which is another big visitor weekend. I mentioned that Pylon is going to be going on this weekend. We're going to be covering a two-day event. But that also means some high-profile athletes from around the country are going to be in town. And lo and behold, that's good news for USC that can get those kids on campus in between their their time taking a break from competition on the field. So they're going to be hosting some kids. The big one, obviously, is California Power. You've heard us talk about Cali Power numerous times. Gerard has uh, covered a lot of Cali Power already in this uh, early offseason, already. But they're going to be bringing some, a star-studded roster to Southern California. Some guys are traveling from NorCal or local as well but they're bringing some out of staters from around the country they're going to be on campus and you know pound for pound it's probably going to be a more is it is more impressive the word i'm looking for gerard is it going to be a deeper especially when it comes to the 2025 class i think the word you're looking for the phrase would be star studded yeah it's going to be a more star studded group i know obviously Jaquem Stewart, the number one potentially overall player in his class, was there last week. But just in terms of across the board, this is going to be the better weekend. You know, you have Noah McHale, who is the, uh, the local, you know, four-star linebacker who has been to USC 900,000 times. He is expected to be there this weekend. Danton Lynn dropped by to see him earlier this week. He confirmed that he's going to be there. You have a big... NorCal offensive lineman Peter Langley, Langy, you know, six foot five, three hundred and thirty pounds, three-star offensive lineman that USC has been recruiting. He's going to be in town. Myron Charles, Brandon Brown, a couple of big, big defensive linemen, four-star guys. Brandon Brown to a Texas commit. Coach Henny went out to see both of those guys his first week on the job. Jared Smith, the top, top fifteen, top twenty. Edge rusher, uh, Coach anyone went out to see him again. Again, these are the guys that are going to be on campus with Cali Power. They're going to be on campus this weekend for USC. So it's a big opportunity to, you know, I, I wouldn't call it – would you call it a traction visit in, in a sense, Gerard? Yeah, for some of these guys, okay. it's going to be traction visits. For Myron Charles, for
2: Brandon Brown. Brandon Brown is already committed to Texas. Uh, he's from Melbourne, Florida. Uh, These kids were already in L.A. a few weeks ago, earlier this month, at the beginning of January, and they are back. The only reason they weren't able to take unofficial visits then, because it was the high school recruiting dead period, so they couldn't be on campus. So this week is the first week that they're actually going to be able to take unofficial visits, and they may pop up at UCLA. I'm not 100% sure about that yet, but they are, the the vast majority of them, jumping on a bus after they are – you know, at the tournament for Saturday and they're headed for USC in the evening and they'll be there for a little while. And yeah, uh, it's going to be a little bit of chopping up traction visit. Now, Eric Henderson has already visited. Uh, Myron Charles, uh, Brandon Brown, uh, like you said, Jared Smith, who's not actually, to my knowledge, a part of the California power team. Uh, I believe he's just coming out for a visit. I'm not 100% sure about that yet. Maybe he's a part of some other team that's going to be out here uh, for the five on five tournament. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, those guys have had visits and they've hosted USC. So there's a little bit of a rapport and there's some relationship there. Uh, But this is going to go much further into being able to sit down, see the facilities, be in Southern California, you know, for a couple days. And um, again, for Myron Charles, for Brandon Brown, uh, for Andre Fuller, who they just offered a scholarship a couple of weeks ago, the edge rusher from Grayson High School in Georgia. Um, J. Raylan McCoy is a guy that USC's kind of recruiting a little bit. Um, I think he's already committed to Alabama, however. Uh, Marco Jones is another player. He's a little more local from Northern California, Danville, and he's going to be yep. down here and also taking place in the tournament. A guy that I think USC definitely has to get traction with right now. He's talking about Penn State, Michigan just doesn't have a great relationship with the new USC coaching staff. However, DeAnton Lynn has been up there to see him in person as well. So this is another visit uh, for him down to Southern California where he actually gets to be on campus and gets to be At USC, which, you know, he's been down to Southern California before, but he's never actually unofficially visited USC. So, yeah, that's a big deal for some of these kids just to get around uh, the facilities and the staff as a whole and get that vibe with the staff. Not just Eric Henderson, not just Sean Nua, but, you know, the entire coaching staff, Lincoln Riley, you know, even some of the offensive coaches. Uh, So that's going to be a big deal for them. And obviously defensive line is a huge it's a it's a position of need for usc it's also a position where everybody wants to see usc turn the corner recruiting wise now we've talked in the past this is a challenging cycle for usc to turn the corner Uh, not just because of their nil approach but because of the schedule the transition to a new conference new quarterback different style that they're going to be playing there's a lot of different things there that could be obstacles for them to have a really good season and certainly that is the catalyst for being able to have a, a good recruiting class to be able to close out a good recruiting class because you may be able to make some moves over the summer and if you get your nil straight you could be competing with you know all these schools that are at the top of the recruiting rankings but then have a poor season and that is going to cause maybe you know some of the class to erode so you have to couple both of those things and I know people are saying right now what about Miami what about Texas A&M what about this score that school that only won seven games and they were able to have great recruiting classes I mean Texas A&M we've seen what happened to them you know they they had two bad seasons they lose their coach and that class is completely eroded. So. Yeah, I mean, it does matter, and I think it matters more for USC because if you're going to be recruiting at the defensive line position in order to have a really good class, chances are you're probably going to have to grab some of these guys in the South. And the fact of the matter is, even when USC was rolling with Pete Carroll, it was an obstacle. It was very difficult to go down into the Southeast and be able to pluck away some of these top defensive tackles and defensive ends. It just – did not happen very often, and they tried, and they spun their wheels on some guys, and it just wasn't something that was going to be. Uh, it wasn't something that they could do repeatedly or consistently. You know, you had some some guys here and there that you were able to get. Usually, it was a guy like Leonard Williams, which you know, even after the Pete Carroll era, that was the Lane Kiffin era. He was originally from Carson, California, so there was some connection there. So it is very difficult to be able to go down there and grab a handful of guys from the South or, you know, maybe a guy or two from Georgia and then grab one of the top players from Texas. It's just very difficult to be able to do that. But I think this is something that we're going to watch the momentum that they have. It's really going to start with who actually makes it on campus to officially visit because as we talked about last week, one of the issues that USC has had is they just haven't given themselves many good options on the interior defensive line the past two cycles. You know, you, you what, what was it? Um, I think Ryan Gretzky was the one that says you miss every shot you don't take. You
1: miss 100% of shots you don't take.
2: And so USC, they bring down two guys that are interior defensive linemen the whole summer, uh, the, the whole cycle for official visits. It's like, wow, you're not giving yourself much of a, a, a margin of error there. And so the fact that you're getting these guys potentially down for unofficial visits Are they able to connect enough to be able to get the official visits? That's going to be the big thing. Because, listen, let's also be completely accurate about the setting here. This is California Power flying in a bunch of these guys for a tournament. And USC is piggybacking off of this. So if there was not a tournament this weekend – I don't know if all these. I mean, I know not all these guys are going to be on campus this weekend. So there is a sort of correlation there. We can't just say, oh, my gosh, USC is recruiting so well. All these guys are just racing to get on campus unofficially on their own dime. That's not really the case here. The case is <laughs> there is a tournament. I'm sure USC knew the tournament was coming. USC is probably very aware that these guys all play for California power. California power has taken unofficial visits to USC before they were on campus last year during the pylon tournament and they had a bunch of guys unofficially visit USC. So, yeah, there's there's a little bit of correlation there. That's how you have to line things up. That's strategy wise. We talked about it last week. That was actually bleeding the junior day to some extent because you had a tournament in Miami the battle seven-on-seven seven and five-on-five five tournaments, and California Power, Trillion Boys, Premium Sports, uh, Ground Zero, they were all out there for that tournament. So you knew there were going to be a bunch of players that were going to be in Miami and they weren't going to be at USC unofficially. So now you know the tide has turned, and you have a tournament here. You also have a tournament in Vegas. So you have some opportunity when you got guys in the neighborhood to get them up on campus. And that is absolutely crucial because there have been instances in the past not so much with this coaching staff, but past coaching staffs where you had big tournaments and they weren't getting guys on campus. And you're just thinking to yourself, what, what, what's going on? Like, that's a wasted opportunity. you got some kids here from Georgia or from Texas, and they're in town for a tournament. You better make damn sure that you can get them in for an unofficial visit just to get them on campus, just to get in front of them. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't make a huge difference. Maybe you don't get that traction, but you got to at
1: least try. You have to. To at least try. Again, a lot of these guys are going to be on campus. A lot of them are going to be playing in the pylon tournament. So I'm excited to be out there for my first recruiting event of the offseason of 2024. Gerard has been to like 10 of these things. The other big one that was supposed to make it out was. And I know Gerard is eagerly awaiting for me to, to butcher this name. But offensive tackle Andrew. Babalola? Babalola. Babalola, one of the top offensive tackle prospects in the nation, top 20 in five-star range out of Overland Park, Kansas. USC offered recently. He is a Cali Power guy, correct? He is, yeah. He has
2: been uh, on their roster. He was not playing for them, and he wasn't in Southern California for their last tournament, but he is – Along with David Sanders, who's a five-star offensive tackle, two guys that have sort of been associated with them. So the plan, from what I understand, I mean, I was told that he was going to be out here and he was actually going to be playing with them this weekend. As of today, Wednesday, I was told he probably wasn't going to make the trip. So there was still some question maybe. But I was told probably not. So that was a big one for USC. Lincoln Riley actually went and visited him at his high school uh, earlier in the month. And so, you know, there's only so many of those big franchise type left tackles: 6'6, 275, great frame, good looking kid on film. Um, again, a guy that it would be a traction visit. You know, you want to get him on campus, get him in front of the coaching staff and just love him up a little bit, get him the Southern California, used to the travel, used to the West Coast, so on and so forth. So we'll see if there's any change to that. But as of now, it doesn't look like he's going to be on campus.
1: Again, he would have been one of the headliners of this trip, but again, does not seem like he's going to make it out. But we'll keep you updated on that. If something changes, maybe things do change. Another one that could possibly make it out or was slated to make it out, maybe he's not going to make it out is Jonte Gilbert, the four-star safety that has been to campus a couple times. Uh, he seems like he's pretty well-versed with Southern California USC, but this would have been a big opportunity to get in front of new defensive backs coach uh, Doug Belk and Danton Lynn, you know, him being a safety. New DC, this would have been a really great visit potentially for Dante Gilbert to come out. He is a Cali power guy as well. Again, kind of in the same boat. Was expected to be out here. Maybe he's not going to be out here. We'll have to keep that updated throughout the week. Yeah, I reached out to him
2: uh, just to confirm. He told me he was going to be out here last week, but things change. And so uh, just kind of following up with guys this week, he's been one of the guys that I've yet to hear back from. So there's a possibility that he's not going to be out here. Uh, I think he did play for California Power in the Miami Battle Tournament. And, you know, he could have been banged up or something of that nature you never really know. Um, But he was looking forward to getting back out there. He has Mm -hmm. met Doug Belk in person and has hosted him uh, at his school and has a prior relationship with him. Doug Belk's originally from Georgia. And so um, there's uh, some good traction there. I I certainly wouldn't say that his visit to USC would be a traction visit. This is more of trying to keep up with the Joneses, um, trying to keep up with Clemson, trying to keep up with uh, Florida State and and those schools out there. It seems like Clemson's kind of the leader for him right now. And that's a a tough pull for USC, but one that is potentially doable. Uh, Again, we have to kind of see what USC does with their NIL approach and, you know, how they're able to compete from that aspect of things. But, you know, Jonte Gilbert's a guy that really, I mean, he genuinely likes USC, genuinely likes Southern California. And um, he was pretty pumped up that Doug Belk got the job. Hasn't been, you know, in contact and is a little familiar with DeAnton Lim, but USC previously was recruiting him more as a cornerback that could potentially play nickel, maybe safety. So he likes that. He he likes uh, the scheme that they were running. Um, and now that Doug Belk is there, he likes Doug Belk, and I think he likes what he does from a development standpoint. So there's a lot of boxes that USC was checking for him, uh, but we'll see if he's able actually to be back out here. He was out here in January earlier uh, for the uh, excuse me the uh, Super Seven tournament that California Power. Uh, participated in, but uh, like I said, he said he was coming out. He was going to be back out here again for Pylon, um, but uh, have yet actually to hear uh, from him. I'm actually just getting a text message from, oh, wait, nope. Um, Oh, Tristine Castro will not be at uh, USC this weekend either. He's going to the battle tournament in Las Vegas. So that was another kid that USC has offered and um, actually went to go see him um, in person. I believe it was this week or last week. I think Danton Lynn was actually up at the school. And so, yeah, he's going to be in Vegas this weekend. And um, I think he's playing for trillion. I'm not hundred percent sure it's, it's hard to keep track. Sometimes these guys jump from team to team as well, but um, another kid that I'm sure, you know, USC wants to get on campus, particularly for spring ball. A lot of these kids, they want to see the defense, you know, they want to see the defense play. They want to see what they're doing drill wise. Um, it is going to be a little bit of recruiting on faith. You know, we've talked about that the past two cycles. Uh, first it was just Lincoln Riley and the faith that Lincoln Riley is going to build a winner at USC with that first class before knowing what they were going to do on the field. And they went 11 games, but the defense is still not playing very well. And that was sort of the reputation that Lincoln Riley and Alex Grinch had coming from Oklahoma. And so you come back the next year and you're basically preaching, Hey, don't worry. We won 11 games. All we got to do is tighten up the defense, and it's going to happen this year. And you were kind of dependent on that, and I don't think a lot of kids really bought into it. And, you know, the results speak for themselves, basically. And so you've got to get a revamped defensive staff. But now that new defensive staff, while they have a great resume, and I think uh, certainly it's, it's a staff that from just a coaching resume, development standpoint, experience standpoint, it really stands out. Uh, it's still a a coaching staff that has to say, hey, trust us. You know, we're going to be really good next season just because so many of these kids don't want to wait and go through the process. In fact, I mean, I think it was Hayden Lowe who I spoke to the edge rusher from Oaks Christian after the junior day, and he kind of broke it down like, listen, I'm going to go through my official visits, but I'm not looking to commit until I get into the middle of my senior year. I was like, oh, okay. What, why? why? That, is there something like your birthday or something? Like, you know, kind of an odd into the middle of my senior year. You don't usually hear that. Usually, you hear, I want to get it done before my senior year. And he says, I want to see what happens with these teams. Like, all these teams are telling me all these different things, and it's really interesting to hear. But I want to see how they put together what they're saying on the field. How does how do those words? Translate into production on the football field because you know how that works and how teams win and lose is going to depend on whether those coaches are even at those schools when it comes to making a decision. So I, I want to take my time, I want to wait. And you know, while USC fans want to see commitments early, that's really if this is a coaching staff that's going to get the job done, that's really what you want. You want kids to wait because that's going to give the coaching staff an opportunity to be able to show the improvement. And that's what everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for, you know, the other shoe to drop for USC. And it's not, you know, the offense. And of course, there's questions about, OK, quarterback position. And is it going to be Miller Moss? Is the offense going to change uh, you know, fundamentally because he's not necessarily as mobile as Caleb Williams, so on and so forth? So there are questions there. Offensive line, there would be questions. But the bigger question is clearly the defense and the defense development. And you need time to be able to show that you've actually been able to develop and you can be better. You know, we saw a, a pretty good defensive effort against Louisville. You know, shockingly, just you know, like why why? You know, we know Danson Lynn was on campus, but he wasn't really involved with the practices per se. So, you know, that improvement you want to see across the board. And then if you do have that, it makes USC a pretty difficult team to beat. You know, if you've got the offensive of production that they had last season or even some of that production, you know, not even at the same level and you're able to have much better defense, yeah, that's that's going to be – that's a formula for winning conference in and cha- in, in national championships or at least getting into the college football playoff. So a guy like Hayden Lowe, he's waiting to see that. A lot of these other kids are like, okay, y- you're basically going to have to sell them that in June because they're going to be making their decisions in July and in August.
1: Okay, Gerard, let's keep it pushing into our next section, which is sort of kind of a signing day preview, because that is what February signing day has turned into, a big nothing for most schools, maybe a couple guys here and there. But for USC, it's really not going to be that exciting. You know, there are a couple... And I say literally a couple to options on the table for the Trojans signing date next Wednesday, a week from when this is being recorded the seventh. I wanted to start with the San Diego defensive lineman who might be the toughest name I've ever had to pronounce on this show. Ratmana Bulbalavu. I don't know. I think I did okay with that. Gerard, can you score yeah, me on I that? I think that's, Pretty decent. I don't know if that's the most difficult name, but I think. But you it helped. It helped close. that you. It helped that you spell it out phonetically for me. You're a real. <laughs> you're a real. You're not supposed to say that,
2: Chris. You're supposed to act like you got it on the first try.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna let, let them peek behind the curtain. A four star prospect in our rankings, number forty defensive lineman, six foot four, two hundred and sixty pounds, out of Carlsbad, California, former Washington signee. That was released from his letter of intent, so he's back on the market for the 2024 class. He goes to the most patriotic high school in America, Army and Navy Academy. I really don't know what that is, but again, six foot four, 260 pounds would be another little boost to the defensive line class. Uh, also plays rugby, competes in track and field. Has been super productive over the last three years with 60 and a half sacks, had 99 tackles and 19 sacks as a senior. Kind of versatile, could slide inside, play three-tech, use him as an inside-outside edge rusher. Again, 6'4", 260. He's going to be visiting USC for an official visit, and he's also going to be visiting, I'm blanking on the other school. Utah? Right now, Utah. I think it's Utah, yes. Utah, he will be taking official visits to Utah and USC, so down to a final two. Wants to make that decision soon. Obviously, his, his recruitment has been thrown into a tizzy with the changes for the uh, Washington staff but he's back on the market. This could be a p- potential guy USC could, you know, be in the mix for for signing day next weekend, but Gerard, or seriously next week. Gerard, what have you to say about Bula Bavu? Yeah, Boulibavu. I don't think
2: USC wants him to take an official visit to Utah. They would probably like to close the deal on this ASAP, and I've talked to some folks that are really high on him. That that talked about him last summer, and you know thought he was one of the best players on the West Coast. And twenty four seven Sports actually has him ranked as a four star. I think he's a composite three star. Yeah. Uh, so you know there are some people locally who have pounded the table for him, and certainly you know has that profile multi sport athlete, and we see that with so many draft picks. Uh, where guys are playing more than one sport and they sort of develop uh, as football players, but that athleticism of being able to play different sports that command different things from you, whether it be from agility standpoint and where where near standpoint um, in general uh, showing the flexibility uh, to play different sports and rugby and track and super productive. Now it's army Navy school, which is obviously not a big um, school that's seeing a ton of great competition, Uh, But nevertheless, uh, a guy that, yes, from a attribute standpoint, profile standpoint, very raw, uh, very much a project, but somebody that clearly USC feels like they need to circle the wagons on and push for harder. Um, He is the cousin of Tuli Tuli Gasanoa, the nose tackle out of Washington. And um, he's, uh, as Chris pointed out, as I mentioned his name, Former SC commit. I kind of fr- I forgot about that. How could you
1: forget this name? I mean, I know we joke about you s- f- deleting names, but this is such a memorable name because I had he to spell from it from USC. All the
2: time. That's that's a that's a back button on me, you know. Like that's decommitted from USC, signed somewhere else. Cool, bro. On to the next one. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I he remember committed. when you brought it up. I was like, oh yeah, tu <inaudible> Tuli Latuli. Gasano. Yeah, I, I remember. De La Salle. Like De La Salle, baby. And I feel like we were going to go up there to see him in person. Like maybe there was a cow game yeah. and you and shotgun were going to go up there and shoot him, but then he didn't get back to us or something like that happened. He was really difficult, really difficult to get on the phone and talk to initially he wasn't, but then when it actually came down to where he was taking visits and what have you, we could not get him on the phone. We couldn't get much correspondence to confirm things, so on and so forth. So uh, nevertheless, yeah, a guy that was formally committed to USC. So certainly USC has an angle here. Um, There's some familiarity. He's down in in San Diego. Speaking of uh, Rutmana. he, you know, would be closer to home. And I think, like I said, USC wants to shut this down now. They don't want him going to Utah and entertaining Utah. It's like, listen, you want to get this done quickly. This is a first choice kind of school. You, you know, have a a relationship with Sean Nua, you know, get to know Eric Henderson and get to know that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have something going here at USC, something special. We're, we're turning this thing around, so on and so forth. Um, coming from, you know, a, a, a good academic institution, um, USC could be able to sell that, too. So it's one of those things that I think, um, you know, from that standpoint, if he leaves USC uncommitted and then turns around and takes that Utah visit, you kind of wonder. Actually,
1: it's actually flipped. He's going to Utah first, then USC. He's going to Utah Wednesday to Friday and then. Friday to Sunday will be USC. So USC is getting the final push here. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Actually, yeah, yeah. He's on campus at Utah right now, isn't he? Correct. Yes. Okay.
2: As, yeah. As stated, okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I I for some I reason I was thinking he had that Utah visit still uh to come. And I would assume, and this is an assumption because I actually haven't um uh, asked anybody. Greg Biggins would probably know this, but I don't think he would be an early in row league, correct? Because at this point, it'd be kind of late to be able to add. He must be a spring – or excuse me, a, a summer guy um, mm. that would come in. I, I don't know 100% sure, um, but nevertheless, I mean, he could take you know visits uh, later um, in the spring. We've seen that happen. There will be a dead period after signing day, but then you know guys can actually take visits still. So it was one of those things where – I had, I didn't have the dates in my head and I thought maybe he was going to visit Utah afterwards. So yeah, you, USC will want to close this down. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's definitely some confidence that he's still going to visit USC that Utah hasn't necessarily shut it down. On the other hand, Utah would definitely want to shut it down. I mean, they don't want him going to LA and visiting USC this weekend, but uh, it sounds like that's going to happen. So yeah, this is one that you kind of pencil in and say, okay, This is potentially a commitment, you know, either on signing day or right before signing day for USC. Uh, So there will be something report uh, for signing day um, 2024 here for the uh, 2024
1: class. Yeah, and the other potential addition would be Jaden Walker, the three-star linebacker, Michigan State commit out of the Michigan area that USC has been pursuing. Again, was committed to Michigan State. They had their coaching change. You know, decided to wait on his signing, did not sign in December, took an official visit to USC before that signing period, decided, I want to think about it a little more. I still think USC is in a really good position. I'm going to have to talk with him and get his plans for this uh, upcoming week, see where his head's at, see what's going on there. But again, interesting, this could be another addition, so USC could have as many as two. Two, I know that sounds like a, a lot, USC fans, but they could have two signings on uh, next Friday for, uh, sorry, next week, next Wednesday for signing day. So, again, Jaden Walker and Ratmana could be two names to keep an eye on as we approach the 7th the for the official signing day. So, Gerard, not not a ton going on, though, is what I'm saying. And probably not going to warrant a live show from us. Yeah, not right now. Doesn't seem like it, you know. Um, not much will
2: have changed, even from a – portal standpoint you know transfer standpoint not a whole lot has gone on since really the Christmas break January has been very quiet for USC even from a standpoint of official visitors we thought that they would have maybe a handful of official visitors um, not just transfers but maybe even out of the high school ranks and they just have not had anybody on campus it's really been a couple of weeks of USC just getting on the road and having their coaches go evaluate. And there really hasn't been a whole lot going on on campus outside. You know, the smaller junior day we talked about uh, last weekend. And then they're going to have some guys on campus. Uh, not really for a junior day, but it'll be a pretty big recruiting event. Uh, just having some of the California power players down there on campus. So, yeah, USC, it, feel, it it felt like once we got past the early signing period, they were almost turning the page a bit because there were some guys that were in the portal that, you know, they messed around with a bit, but they just they didn't get much traction on at all. I mean, even Silas Bowen, a guy that, you know, early it sounded like USC was going to have a really good shot at getting him. They don't even get him on campus for an official visit. Uh, and then, you know, the whole Will Howard thing we waited around for for a while. So there's a lot of stuff that just didn't materialize from a transfer standpoint. And then some of those guys – um, you know, Terry Busey was another guy. Now, we haven't heard much about him, the five-star uh, out of Texas, uh, who was the Texas A&M commit, and we did talk to him at the Polynesian Bowl, and he said he was still thinking about visiting USC, but we just have not heard anything about that. So that's one that we still have to check in on, but Dylan oh, Evans... I,
1: I have that update for you. He's Okay, update visit. us. Update us. Yeah, he told, I believe, Steve Wilfong that he has his two visits locked in. And it's not going to be USC, so yeah, we're gonna the the it sailed on that what, whatever they say the ship has yeah. sailed on that one.
2: Uh, Dylan Evans was another guy USC was trying to get on campus. He ended up signing early with Texas AM after he said he was going to wait. Uh, there's been you know a few guys like that. That uh, Dominic Kirk's was another defensive lineman uh, out of Ohio that was uh, formally committed to Washington and was going to visit USC before the dead period. And then Washington kind of talked him out of that visit and he held and then turned around and visited Ohio State and committed Ohio State. So we don't think he's going to be on campus uh, this weekend and didn't visit last weekend. So, yeah, there's been some of those guys. Uh, it's fallen through. And like I said, it just felt like the coaching staff was already turning the page a bit, even with the transfers uh, that they're you know kind of looking forward. And we'll see how aggressive and active they are in the second Transfer porthole window, which I begin, I believe, April 15th, which is kind of that first day of the May evaluation periods, if I'm correct on that.
1: I believe you are correct on that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we talked about it before, you know, the second window, it gets kind of overlooked because there's so much going on with the first window. You know, there's coaching changes, the high school Early signing period is coming up. There's there's a lot going on, so it gets emphasized quite a bit. And I think with the college coaching changes, there's the assumption that the better players are always going to be in that window because of all these changes with the colleges. But we saw after the dead period some pretty significant coaching changes. You know, obviously the Nick Saban uh, retirement moved and shifted things quite a bit. Uh, really, three different schools. In Arizona, and Washington, and Alabama, you know, was sort of the result of that. And then you have with Michigan, you know, Jim Harbaugh leaving. And, you know, we haven't really totally seen the fallout from that yet. And so, yeah, we're, we're kind of looking forward. That second window, Barry Alexander, Eric Gentry, uh, there's been uh, quite a few good players. You know, Jordan Addison, those are all second window guys that USC has picked up. And so, You know, from a quality standpoint, USC, they made some moves at certain positions where you kind of go, ah, man, I think they could get better players there. Wide receiver was one position. They had a couple offers out to transfers that just didn't think were high-level guys. Um, Offensive line, they seem to really be picky with the guys that they went after. You know, we were kind of surprised. Considering
1: last year, does that?
2: Maybe, you know, maybe that's you know, lesson learned sort of thing in terms of how aggressive they want to be at that particular position. Uh, but even with some defensive linemen, there, eh, there were some guys It just I don't know if it was a matter of just not a lot of interest. And, and those guys just ended up elsewhere. But there were some offers there. But then there were some offers that weren't made that kind of surprised us. So, yeah, it, it this first window was interesting. You know, we kind of I, I need to kind of take a step back and really evaluate it and look at it as a whole because that question still comes up from people, you know, did USC really get better after the first window from the guys they lost and then the guys that they got? But certainly with the second window, there's all that. There's always that potential. You get some mega players, you know. You get some guys like a McKill uh, Williams or, or, you know, some of these guys that, you know, have been bantered about as potential transfers. And it seems like where there's smoke, there's usually fire because, you know, even with the Texas A&M guys, there were quite a few players – that um, were rumored that they were going to be in the transfer portal, and then they didn't end up in the transfer portal to only eventually a year later end up in the transfer portal. So you do have to kind of keep an ear out for that. I mean, Damani Jackson, you know, on our side of things, how many times was it rumored that he was leaving
1: USC? Uh, Every 10 seconds.
2: Yeah, a lot of times. And it ended up happening, you know. So that smoke, that smoke has more often than not, there's eventually been something to it. And so uh, we'll we'll have to see what happens with the second window. If there's some guys that pop up and end up, um, you know, being impact players uh, for the Trojans uh, as they get ready, you know, to go into the summer workouts and then uh, fall camp.
1: All right. Let's run through some just catching up, you know, fans on where coaches have been, some new scholarship offers, a new crystal ball that, is not in favor of USC. We'll just run through this before we go into our break, starting with coaches on the road. Eric Henderson is getting no sleep after a big junior day where he obviously met a bunch of faces and shook a lot of hands. He was already back on the road across the country. He visited DJ Sanders out in Belleville, Texas. Visit visited Max Granville out in Dallas. Jared Smith out in Alabama. Isaiah Gibson out in Georgia. Justin Hill out of Cincinnati he's getting plenty of frequent flyer miles traveling across the country and then he's going to fly back obviously to California for the big visitor weekend going on here. He had Doug Belk out in uh, out to visit Max Granville as well with Lincoln Riley and then Lincoln Riley also visited four star wide receiver Kelshawn Johnson out of uh, Hitchcock, Texas. Also, stop by Folsom up in North Cal to check out Ryder Lions, the 2026 QB. And also, before you guys come at me, because I hate, I hate this, because when, every time I point out that Ryder Lions is a 2026, everyone always jumps on me for saying that Ryder is probably going to take a Mormon mission and be in 2027. Guy, like, okay, I get it. I get it, Gerard, but he's a 2026. He's literally a 2026, 20, and I'm not going to explain and call him a 2027, 20, no matter, depending on whatever happens with this Mormon mission. But Lincoln Riley is out at Folsom, Folsom to check out Rider Lions. So, yeah. Okay. Glad to know that. Uh, glad, glad I got that across to anyone. You don't like guys coming at you. I don't. All right. All right. Um, no, I don't. So. I mean, not much there to say. I I noticed you just wrote Sean Nua visits, and then there was nobody. So I guess Sean Nua is not going anywhere. Sean Nua like visited not, a, a
2: few players, or he's um, not, or he's not
1: taking photos and posting. Uh,
2: yeah, not not a, a huge uh, photo guy, kind of like you know with Eric Henderson and some of the other coaches. You know, Lincoln Riley. You know, a lot of guys uh, getting their their time on X with the, with the photos and. Um that's a new thing. You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago like
1: now, like, Riley, <laughs> excuse me. Chew? Uh I I uh, I sneezed. I I apologize. You couldn't put yourself on mute for that? You didn't know I, it was coming? I, look, I have the sheet up here and this is why guys come at you. I have the sheet up here and I couldn't it, You know just one of those those uh You know like when you're the quarterback and you have the edge rusher coming off you know, the blind side, you can't see it. It just comes up on you, like, real fast. It was one of those. Like, I couldn't yeah. see it. it just, I, mean, I just couldn't it, it, switch it in time. And, you know, I'm sorry. I apologize.
2: Yeah, when they're coming on you fast, dude, it's hard to get away from that. So, uh, Josiah Sharma is the other guy I'll at Folsom as well that USC. Um, taking Sugar a Bear. Yeah,
1: Sugar Bear. Um,
2: a big, you know, 6'6 body that uh, Just decommitted trying to get on campus. Yeah. Decommitted from Washington. Um, certainly, you know, you got Ryder Lyons and, and Walker Lyons, uh, a former Folsom, uh, football player, uh, they're, you know, trying to make a little bit of a connection there and work on him. Uh, another guy you got to get on campus for an unofficial visit. He was unofficially reportedly at Oregon last weekend. And so I didn't see any feedback or any stories uh, about him. Uh, um, you know, taking in junior day at this point. So I don't know if he actually made it up there, but it was reported that he was supposed to be at the Oregon junior day last weekend. Oregon, I think is having another junior day this weekend. So, you know, one of those things where schools will have multiple junior days and and try to bring as many kids in as possible in groups. And sometimes it's strategic. Sometimes it's just, Hey, we want to call it a junior day because we don't want anybody to feel left out for the junior day that we had that they didn't attend for whatever reason. Um, So, yeah, I I think, you know, that was a a big visit. USC is certainly taking a lot of interest in uh, Sharma. Um, You know, Eric Henderson, like you said, you know, he was a little late getting on the road. You know, he had to take that recruiting test and he was, uh, you know, really kind of like the last coach hired. And um, now he's just gangbusters, you know, going out there, uh, visiting a lot of kids in the South, um, doubling up on some players. You know, I think uh, he was out to see Max Granville, and then later in the day, uh, Max Granville actually had a photo with Lincoln Riley and Doug Belk. So, kind of like, you know, a triple team there, I guess, if you will, uh, with USC trying to, uh, you know, recruit some of these guys and just, you know, make it known how much they, they want those players. Um, Isaiah Gibson was an interesting one, a big, you know, listed as an edge rusher at 6'5, 250. And as the pair style pointed out, he looks bigger than that. You know, he looks more like 270. Um, a guy that you get a feeling. USC might have a little bit of traction there, a little bit of an angle. Uh, Jared Smith, we already reported is going to be uh, on campus this weekend uh, from Alabaster, Alabama. Uh, another big body. Uh, these are going to be difficult guys to to be able to land. You know, th- we talk about the unofficial visits, the traction visits. That's the first part. The good news is that USC is getting this done in January, February, as opposed to June or late May where these kids are already making their decisions. They've already built their relationships, and you're just kind of thrown a Hail Mary, getting them on an official visit, and they're going to make their decision in July or August. You know, Now you have some time. You have the ability to not only build a relationship and get them on other visits to get them more comfortable with being out here, but you get to read the recruitment a little more too. You get to find out, like, who's in this kid's year? who's the influencers around him that are going to be a part of this decision-making process. And that's crucial to be able to get commitment. So doing this earlier and getting all these guys on campus, and not all these guys are going to be on campus. I mean, certainly USC wants to get uh, unofficial visits for some of these players and they are going to get some, and, and some of it coincides with tournaments and they're already going to be in town, but other guys are coming out here because they want to see what Eric Henderson is about. And certainly I think, you know, that's more important as you get the spring practices. Cause I think, you know, that, that gives you a chance as a prospect to be able to see what they're doing on the field, you know, how they're using guys. I, I mean, I think there, it just connects maybe a little more, it's a little more football oriented. And I think with USC, certainly football is the factor that they've got to overcome on the defensive side of the ball with landing four star, five star guys. It's football. It's not academics. It's not location. Yeah, NIL, we know, but football is a big part of it. Development is a big part of it. And so that's the one other thing that getting guys on campus during the spring, it's going to be important for spring football because you want to get them around the football element of it and sell them on that and show them that that is not a weak link in this decision. It's not, wow, you know, I really like USC because of the academics and the connections and the brand building. And I really got a great connection with Coach Henderson. I think he's a great guy. But football-wise, uh, it's not Ohio State. It's not Alabama. It's not Georgia. It's not Texas, et cetera, et cetera. You want them to feel like, yeah, man, I, the, I, I'm really excited about the football aspect of USC. Like that's a factor that is drawing me there because you've got these coaches there now and they know what they're doing. Again, a little bit of faith that has to go into that. You're you're asking these kids to believe that this defensive staff is going to gel together, it's going to come together, they're going to have this great scheme. Um, But, I mean, it it is there. It is there on paper, at least, you know, in terms of the scheme that they're running and, you know, the coaches that they have there to run it. It's an interesting group, for sure. I mean, Matt Ince is sort of, you know, kind of like, you know, where does he fall into all of this coming in from the FCS level, um, having been a head coach? I mean, it's it's a dynamic but eclectic group. So it is going to be interesting to see how it comes together. And I do think the spring ball aspect of it is something that's kind of big. You know, if you can get these guys on campus and there's some football that's going
1: to be played. I did want to very quickly add a couple more, including Matt Entz. And as I mentioned earlier, but if in case you missed it, Danton Lynn was out at Bonita to see Noah McHale. So just wanted to reemphasize. Castro. Just wanted to reemphasize that. And then. Coach Lincoln Riley and Matt Entz were in Texas at Skyline to see Elijah Barnes, the four-star 2025 linebacker that has a has USC offer. So they were out there together to see him. And they were also probably the most notable linebacker they went to see this week was Riley Pettyjohn, the McKinney, Texas top uh, 60 linebacker. He's top 100, number 58 in the 24-7 sports ranking, 6'2", two, 205 pounds. Teammate of Brian Jackson out of McKinney. He's been to campus at least two times. And I just want to read uh, what his, I believe it is his mother, wrote in a caption, uh, posted a photo of him and Lincoln Riley and Matt Entz. Coach Riley brought at Coach Matt Entz, a.k.a. the closer to McKinney High School. He is awesome. So it looks like Matt Entz is making an impression on the recruiting trail, Gerard. Yeah, that's that's big. I mean, Petajan is...
2: Definitely one of those recruits that is going to go through the process. Like he's been to a bunch of schools unofficially. He has a lot of schools after him hard. The local schools are already after him hard. That's a, a challenging get, but USC has their foot in the door with McKinley. You know, they've recruited that school mm-hmm. pretty hard. And like you said, they get Brian Jackson. Um, there's some other guys there that, you know, they've, they've recruited as well. They have a presence there, you know, whether, they're able to actually get in there and get the, the creme de la creme. You know, there's really only been one school. Maybe you could argue Alabama has been pretty successful in Texas, but really Ohio State. Ohio State has been the school that outside the state of Texas, really outside the region, has had a ton of uh, success going after, mostly as the defensive backs, and it's actually been wide receivers more so than it has been linemen. And, you know, I mean, Ohio State – I think when it comes to linemen, they're recruiting locally, and then they're going to the East Coast usually with a lot of those guys. They do dip into Florida a little bit, but Texas has been big for them at the wide receiver and defensive back position. And USC is trying to kind of, you know, recreate a little bit of the success that Ohio State has had and certainly the success that Lincoln Riley had at Oklahoma. Now, I would say that's much different because Oklahoma, I mean, it's over the Red River. It's very local uh, for a lot of those North Texas kids. I mean, shoot it might be a a closer drive to Norman, Oklahoma than it is to Austin for some of those guys in the DFW area. I'm not hundred percent sure. I've never driven across Texas, but nevertheless, it's certainly different when you're outside the region and you're trying to recruit it and you're recruiting it as aggressively and as hard as USC has another spot on the map that USC has recruited. Interestingly hard has been St. Louis. You know, they've been in Missouri. They've been pretty aggressive in Missouri, offering um a few wide receivers and defensive bats uh recently and so that's you know kind of interesting they're trying to make a mark there I don't know if there's any inroads that they have from a coaching connection standpoint um not to my knowledge I think you know the the deluge of offers to Georgia's it, it makes sense just because Doug Belk's originally from Georgia um Eric Henderson has a bunch of connections to Georgia uh he's coached at Texas uh, Tech once upon a time And, uh, you know, even Gavin Morris uh, has connections to Georgia. He lived in Atlanta for quite a long time. So, I mean, going to Georgia and going to those areas isn't anything really new for USC. And like Texas, Georgia is a state that everybody and their brother recruits pretty hard. And, you know, in the past, there was a lot of schools that were able to pillage Georgia, South Carolina, Florida State, um, you know, uh, to a lesser extent, maybe Alabama, Alabama. you know, it, it, there's, there's, it's interesting to see when schools are successful, where they tend to go for that success. You know, like in Miami in the Butch Davis era, when they were extremely successful, they were a pretty national recruiting power. You know, they came out here and grabbed guys like D.J. Williams and Kyle Wright, who was a quarterback up at Monta Vista and one of the number one players in the country. But they made a lot of inroads up In the East Coast, and they got some guys from like Connecticut, and they got guys from Jersey, and they would get linemen, you know, from the Northeast. And then, you know, they had a lot of players in South Florida, you know, like great linebackers in South Florida, defensive linemen in South Florida. So, you know, you had those inherent advantages. Um, being, you know, close to a lot of very stacked positions. But there were some positions where they felt like they needed to go out of state. And so it's interesting to see that development from, you know, programs that have been very good. We talked about Ohio State going into Texas, going into the DFW area specifically. Um, They've done a really, really good job over the past, I mean, really like five or six years recruiting that area, even really going back to, uh, Urban Meyer when he was the head coach at Ohio State and USC is definitely trying to get into Texas which makes sense you know Lincoln Riley and uh, that staff you know the original staff that he had at USC a lot of connections to Texas being at the, the being Oklahoma. And uh, when you're at Oklahoma, you've got to recruit Texas like it's local. Uh, but then they're you know, trying to make Georgia sort of that area. It seemed like for a while they were trying to make the DMV maybe a, a low-key area. I think a lot of that had to do with Caleb Williams. They've not been nearly as aggressive this cycle going after DMV players, Northeast players, as they have been the past couple of cycles. Doesn't mean that during the main evaluation period they don't have guys going up there and recruiting hard, and they have a bunch of offers go out. But I think, you know, Roy Manning, Sean Newell was going out there a lot as defensive line coach. I think now when you got Eric Henderson there, the focus has turned into the South. And it's a more difficult place for USC to recruit. As I said before, you know, going into Georgia, you're one of every other school uh, that wants to be a successful recruiting uh, program on the defensive side of the ball going after defensive ends and defensive linemen in Georgia and other positions as well. I mean, it's a pretty good state all around. Um, You might find more success kind of trying to poke your head in, going against Penn state uh, or or Michigan in New Jersey, if you will. So all this is, is interesting to me from an analytical standpoint, you know, even USC and how they recruit Texas, you know, in the past with Clay Elton, they kind of recruited rural Texas. They recruited some weird areas in Texas. And you're thinking, Why don't you go to Houston? Like I understand, again, you're 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 battling really good programs that are that are going to be recruiting the top players in those areas. You're gonna go against Alabama when you go into Houston. You're gonna go against Texas when you go into Houston. So I understand that, but it's like, you know, trying to like reinvent the wheel by going into you know Galveston and going into these places that are a little more off the map. Um, like Longview, I mean, it's just hard because those guys are are in rural Texas areas and you're trying to bring them to L.A. Like well, you probably have a better chance with a guy from Houston or a guy from Dallas. This coaching staff has been more aggressive in those areas. They've been more aggressive with guys in the suburbs of, of Houston, and they've gone after way, way, way more guys in the Dallas area than the past staff has. So it hasn't necessarily come to fruition, you know, in terms of uh, commitments and what have you. Um, I'm still of the opinion if USC isn't building the fence around Southern California. And again, we go to Bosco, you know, making, or excuse me, Bishop Gorman, making that an extension of Southern California, making Phoenix and Scottsdale an extension of Southern California. If you're not getting a majority of your players from that area and those are your highest rated guys um, on average, it's going to be difficult um, from a, from a talent standpoint, unless again, you're, you're just doing all of this, as sort of a window shopping type of exploration. And it's all for if these guys end up being transfers and then you get to recruit them a second time and you've built these relationships because it does come back to that conversation about NIL and what USC's approach is. And, you know, they really have a shot at some of these top guys because you can, you know, have them come in on unofficial visits and do all that and even official visits. USC's had some really good players come in on official visits and, you know, the ratio guys actually committing um, at some of these positions has been relatively low. So it's one of those things where, yeah, we do have to kind of look at it from that standpoint. Um, is this all like for like the long game <laughs> or is USC like seriously trying to line themselves, get these guys on campus for unofficial visits because they are going to be able to close the deal on the official visits and get those commitments and hold on to those commitments, not the Manasseh Tete's, not the Dakota Fields, where, you know, guys are committed for a month and then they decommit because, I don't know, the check didn't pass or whatever the heck the situation was where you have a dead period and nobody's even allowed to talk to any kids and then all of a sudden they
1: decide, I made a mistake, I want to go commit somewhere else, you know, suspiciously. Gerard has his suspicions. Now, let's move into some new offers that have gone out. I know I read a very long list last week, but there are more new offers. And this one is not as long as the other one, I promise. Uh, I'll start with the 2026s because there's only three that I have here. Four-star, 2026, Matthews, North Carolina linebacker, Thomas Davis Jr. And if that sounds familiar, yes, it's because it's the son of Thomas Davis Sr., the all-pro linebacker from the, the North Carolina Panthers. The Carolina Panthers, sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> the North Carolina, the Panthers. North Carolina Panthers. The Carolina Panthers. Uh, unranked 2026 Gainesville, Florida athlete Xavier Griffin. And then unranked 2026 Matthews, North Carolina defensive lineman Aiden Harris, who is teammates with Thomas Davis Jr. as well. And then in the 2025 class, going to run them here. You have three-star 2025 St. Louis, Missouri wide receiver, DJ Miller, four-star Eureka, Missouri offensive tackle, Jake Lang, three-star Houston, Texas defensive lineman, Smith Oragobo, three-star St. Louis wide receiver, Corey Sims, who's actually going to be visiting this weekend as well, three-star Middleton, Wisconsin D-line, Torin Petaway, four-star Warner Robbins, Georgia safety, Rayshon Dinkins, four-star Bogart defensive lineman, Christian Garrett, and then three-star... Marrero Morero, Louisiana running back Jasper Parker so obviously not as deep as last year last year last week's list but uh still some offers being dished out there Gerard yeah it's interesting you brought up uh the Panthers and
2: uh, we actually just had a interesting story pop up on a player that was offered a scholarship uh from USC uh earlier last year but uh, had just had Eric Henderson come through North Carolina, and it was uh, Kerry Panther Creek defensive lineman Trajan Odom, who who is originally from LA, and uh, mm-hmm. we have a write up on that. Uh, you can check that on the site. But uh, one of those guys that is a technically Southeast defensive lineman, interior defensive lineman, but maybe one of those guys that's a little bit you know kind of off the radar uh, at present date for you know some of those Southeast teams. And, you know, that's another guy. That's another type of recruit that USC can get traction with. And when you have good connections in those areas, and listen, USC offering scholarships to North Carolina and South Carolina prospects, it's like throwing a stone into the abyss. I mean, there's zero traction with any of those players. I mean, that goes back to the Pete Carroll days. It's just for whatever reason, like North Carolina kids and South Carolina kids just usually don't end up visiting USC at all, not unofficially or officially. Uh, But this is an exception to the rule. And it looks like there's, uh, you know, definitely some connections to Southern California with Trajan Odom and a player, like I said, a little maybe less on the radar with some of these schools and you build build a good relationship with them early. You're able to get him out here because he has connections and family out here. And that's, you know, something where, you know, USC can bring in some of these guys. And again, if you're doubling down on coaching more than you are just grabbing the highest rated players out of high school and the portal and you're grabbing your kind of guys. Listen, we saw two teams in the national championship that really built their rosters more on developing good players that were three star guys and lower four star guys than, you know, stacking the roster with five star guys. And so there is a little bit of hope there. That um, you can take that approach and you can say, listen, you know, we're we're not going to necessarily have a top 10, top five high school football recruiting class each cycle, but we're going to get our guys coached up and they're going to be good players. I mean, to some extent, even on the recruiting trail already, USC sort of has given the impression that's what they want to do with the offensive line. They balked on offering a bunch of transfer offensive linemen. They got a full five last cycle. And this cycle, they're getting a full five. And they extend it to some guys that are a little more raw and a little more projects. And it seemed like, at least in the first two cycles, they passed on those type of players to bring in transfers. They weren't going to project. They weren't going to reach on a player. They were going to go after the guy that was ready-made that they felt like could come in and contribute right away. And maybe some of that was necessity, trying to rebuild the roster. Maybe some of it is Lessons learned from past cycles where you bring in transfers and they weren't quite what you thought they were going to be. And more confidence in the guys that you have coached up and you've gotten. Uh, guys like Amos Telelele, guys like Alani Noah, where you're like, hey, you know what, Tobias Raymond, like we can build these guys up here. And we weren't sure when we first got here that we could do that. But now the confidence is beginning. We think we're going to be okay. We can grab some guys that other schools don't really know that much about. And and develop these guys here and end up being a winning program because of it, and that is more of the model. Certainly, what Washington has done, maybe to a lesser extent, Michigan, but certainly Washington, and Chris Peterson and Jimmy Lake, they had some good recruiting classes, like some decent recruiting classes, but they still weren't, you know, these crazy Texas A&M, Miami, Alabama, you know, these level of recruiting classes. You know, even Ohio State, you know, we had a little war room. Um, you know, tidbit about how state and how they've really pushed into recruiting and uh, what they've done to sort of um, back their NIL and their, and their approach to NIL. And certainly with Oregon, you know, they're doubling down, like they're just throwing everything at it right now, trying to get a national championship ASAP. And, you know, USC's taken a little bit of different approach. So whether that continues and again, we're talking about all these big time defensive linemen and, Maybe possibly some offensive linemen that are going to be on campus this weekend. You know, it might not really be for a whole lot. I mean, it might end up being like, okay, that was great. You know, these are nice players to have come and visit and everything. But in the end, the majority of those guys are going to do their NIL thing and they're going to go to Ohio State, Miami, Texas, wherever. And you know, that's going to transition us into another segment that we're going to talk about a little bit with the NCAA and Tennessee and NIL. But I think. You know, there's there's a lot that we're kind of waiting to see what happens with all of this. And so, you know, it's 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 difficult to get too far down the road with uh, the end game of what this recruiting class is going to look like, other than knowing right now, as we as we sit, the strategy and the potential of next year being just a more difficult year to, to, to show out, you know, a more difficult year. In my opinion, at least to to get to the college football playoffs, I know the college football players are expanding. I mean, Chris, you never really talked about this, and given your opinion on it, I mean, I think at face value, it's a difficult, it's a more difficult schedule. And we we always talk about schedule. I mean, there's always this fallacy of trying to predict the schedule preseason, and everybody looks at schedules and they go, "Oh man, this." This team's got such an easy schedule. And then, oh, these guys, man, this is a difficult schedule. Last year's schedule played out the way we kind of thought it was going to play out. With the first time in a long time in the preseason, you sort of looked at the meat of the schedule and thought, OK, Oregon, Utah, UCLA, Washington, like everything is packed up against each other right there. That's going to be the make or break for USC. It's not going to be early on in the season. And sure enough, that's what made or break the season. That's why this season wasn't really successful because you didn't win, you know, two or three of those games. Um but that is a little bit of a fallacy because there has been in years past where you go, "Well, USC should be able to win 10 games. They sh- they're only going to win eight games. You just never know some of these teams how things, you know, come together for them and maybe, you know, their schedules they're coming up, you know, back to back and uh, you get a bye week before you play them. However, it it, it, it sort of uh, settles up. I mean, for you, when you look at what USC has next season, you're playing Michigan, you're playing uh, Penn State, I just think the the median competitiveness of that schedule is higher than USC has had the past couple of years, just in terms of like the lower end teams are for the most part better than the lower end teams USC has played in the Pac-12 in recent years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The it's a higher level of competition going to the Big Ten. You've got you know these programs that have a lot more money, a lot more resources in their programs. I mean, they're not all you know top of the line programs, but across the board, it feels much deeper than the Pac-12. Obviously, you you start that you start this season or this coming season against LSU SEC out there in Las Vegas, in a neutral site game. You're going to the national champions at Michigan. Your first game in the Big Ten as a conference as a conference member ever. You're going to the Big House. Then you got Wisconsin. You're going to Minnesota in October. You have Penn State coming to you know the Coliseum. You're you're going on much further distances. You're also got uh, Washington on the road. You know you get Notre Dame at home. That that's that's helpful. But again, it's it's going to be a pretty brutal schedule. I mean, just looking at it, one, two, three, four, five. At least five teams will be ranked in the top 25 for this season and possibly a couple more. So this is going to be one of the tougher schedules in the country, if not, you know, definitely top three of the toughest slates out there. And they're gonna have to do it with. In kind of a, not a rebuild, but you got a new defense thrown out there, got a new quarterback, got some, you know, rebuild your kind of your offensive line from last year. So there's a lot of things kind of stacked against USC, but maybe that works in their favor. You know, they don't have the the overwhelming pressure that they had in 2023. Maybe no one is expecting them to win, you know, 10 games this year. Maybe that Maybe that's to their benefit if they come in there as kind of an underdog.
2: True. Uh, I think that helps to some extent. Now mm-hmm. it is USC, and there's sure. a lot of schools that are looking at USC from a traditional standpoint. And so, and that happened even in the Pac 12. You know, everybody got up for USC. They're playing at Cal, and it's a dog water Cal team. It doesn't matter. They're going to be up yeah. to play for USC. I would say when we're talking about median and we're looking at the lower end of the schedule in terms of winning percentage in those teams and how good they are projected to be next year. I mean, you look at, okay, going up to Washington state and playing a bad Washington state team, as opposed to going across the country and playing a Maryland team, which you go, okay, Maryland, maybe, you know, traditionally not great, but you literally got to go across the country to go play them. That's that's a tough game in October, in, in mid to late
1: October. Like that with, becomes a game with 10k on the sideline. <laughs> Celebr- celebrity K. Maryland alum, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure.
2: And you mean, and you you know, on the on the flip side, you get Rutgers coming to you, and you're like, okay, maybe you know, it's it's not a great Rutgers team. And then but Rutgers is scrappy, them, man. Greg Seattle, they're scrappy. They're scrappy
1: as hell. I'll they're scrappy,
2: but now they've got to go across the country. Yeah. They basically have to do the reverse and come across the country. So I guess there is that argument like, hey, listen, the Big Ten teams also have to come out to L.A., but the thing is USC is going out and traveling more than any of those other schools are. You know, those schools are playing within the region for the most part. And then they come out to USC for their West Coast trip. USC is going out to the Midwest for the season. (laughs) I mean, they're like, that's the schedule. They're going
1: out there repeatedly. When they go on the road to Minnesota, they're playing in, you know, frigid temperatures and possibly rain and snow. When they come to L.A., they got pretty decent weather comparatively. So they do. I think they do have to go on the road, but they do get better weather in general, which, you know, counts for something.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think the weather because you're playing Wisconsin early on and and really you're playing Minnesota pretty early. I mean, it can snow up there in early October. I mean, I've been out to Iowa and it's snowed in early October, but it wasn't like frigid temperatures type of snow. Anyways, it wasn't, you know, an actual like this is going to be a problem, the wind and, and, you know, where it can get to be a bit of an issue, um, which I think is more like your November games. And for November, I mean, USC is okay. You know, they got to play at Washington, which is just whether it's raining or not is, is a very difficult game. That's a very, very difficult place to win at on the road. And then you're getting your bye week, and then you're getting Nebraska and UCLA and Notre Dame, and Nebraska and Notre Dame are at home. So that's, you know, that's a, a, a decent – that's a decent in terms of, like, weather and, and not having to deal with the environment – Uh, from a weather condition standpoint, I don't think that's a huge factor for them. But I do think the bad teams on the schedule are better than the bad teams on the schedule when you had the Pac-12 conference schedule. So I I think from that standpoint, it becomes a bit more of a challenge. And I I think just from a logistics standpoint, you've got to get your stuff together, man, and make sure that – your your travel schedule is booked properly that this is the first year where you're traveling that far that consistently week in and week out you cannot screw up on that you got to make sure your stuff is booked and that your resources and your logistics are together. Like your ops team better have their I's dotted and their T's crossed because you're you're not going to be down the road. Like nobody's going to be able to make a, a quick flight down you know, from Stanford, because, oh man, we got, we, we forgot some stuff or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like from that standpoint, there's going to be a little bit maybe of a learning curve of the traveling back and forth, traveling back and forth. It's not like, okay, we got to get ready for this one out of conference game early in the season. And, you know, I remember Pete Carroll's staff used to go out and they would, they would scout those games um, for their, for their non-conference games. They were scouting the Nebraska game. They scouted the Ohio state game. They the, the ops team. Over the summer, late spring, we're out there and they're scouting hotels They're scouting, you know, where they're going to stay and what the travel is going to be like to the stadium, the stadium itself. Like they go through that all to know what could happen, what issues could be there, anything that could hang them up from a from a time period. Like you just you want to make it as efficient as possible. Now you have to do this for like five games a year instead of one game a year. So, yeah, I I see that as as a potential hurdle for them. And, again, all of this coming back to recruiting is, you know, what do you look like on the field and and how well can you play on the field to either solidify a a good recruiting class that you build the core of during the summer or potentially get some traction with some guys that haven't committed that are waiting, guys like Hayden Lowe, who want to see, you know, are you the real deal or not? Um, as it gets into the season, there's less and less of those guys now. Uh, the majority of the guys that we've talked about already in this podcast, these California pa- uh, power players, defensive linemen, guys from Florida and what have you, they're going to make their decisions in in July and August. They'll be done. So, you know, w- whether they're able to, you know, buy into what USC is selling over the summer without having a seen the person, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. Um, but there's that potential that they could, nevertheless. Um, I think it's going to come down to, you know, finding the guys that click right. And maybe some of those guys aren't the highest rated guys, but they are guys that USC feels good about. And again, you know, maybe they're just going to double down on development. And uh, I know the fan base isn't going to be like happy about it. You know, when it comes into August and September and it's like, oh, our recruiting class is 15th in the nation. And, you know, people are like looking for it to be, you know, top, top eight, you know, top, top five um but nevertheless uh there's there's a lot of things that are there that are obstacles to getting there you know and and even you know again even if you get NIL to a point where it's more competitive uh for the high school kids like you got to win on the football field so this endeavor into the uh the Big 10 is going to be an interesting one and i think you know people i don't want to say set your expectations low i don't think you have to set them low But you have to realize that it's just going to be more challenging than it has been. There's just going to be more hurdles there. And, you know, maybe, again, USC can surprise like they did in Lincoln Riley's first year. But um, I wasn't expecting that then. And I don't know if I'm expecting that now.
1: Gerard, I think that's a good place to take our break for the show. When we come back, we'll talk about that negative crystal ball for USC. And then some NIL lawsuits going on with some of the five families. We'll get into that after our break. Welcome back to the show, Gerard. I still can't get over the fact that I said line blacker earlier in the early <laughs> in the show.
2: I mean, you can always edit out our blurbs and our, you know, saying things uh, that don't make sense or yeah. wrong about. We can make ourselves look so much better
1: than we do. Yeah, but it's just so just much, so much work, so much work to be done. Let's jump into kind of our quick note here, and that's USC five-star cornerback commit in the 2026 class. The number one cornerback in the 2026 cycle, Brandon Lockhart out of Loyola, California, or Loyola High School in Los Angeles, California, I should say. He picked up a flip crystal ball to Georgia. Now, I guess this isn't super surprising, given that his primary recruiter, Dante Williams, is no longer with USC and is now, you guessed it, at Georgia. Brandon Lockhart recently took a visit to Georgia, and a crystal ball has been placed for a flip for the USC commit. Gerard, 2026, long ways away. Big deal? Not a big deal? How should USC fans feel?
2: A lot of people wanted to make a big deal of him recruiting and committing originally for Dante Williams when at that point we were anticipating Dante Williams wasn't even going to be on the coaching staff which to me and you know I kind of held my tongue at that point but you know commitments are sort of being used as commodities it Mm -hmm. was I think a little bit of a look at the recruiter that I am keep me on staff because I'm the guy I I can bring him yeah, I have the the pulse of the local recruits. And the problem with that is we're looking at 2026, and that means absolutely zero, 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 zero. There is nothing to me that uh, is substantive of your recruiting prowess two years, three years almost removed uh, from the current cycle. And so – It's like, oh, that's nice. And we know that, you know, Dante Williams and USC were pushing for commitments from some other players as well. And it looked like, okay, there's this clear move to try to get some commitments on the board for, you know, it looked to to keep up appearances basically as, hey, look at Dante's this elite recruiter and you got to kind of keep him. But again, it's like, what happened to the 2024 class? What's going on with the 2025 class? Like, why are we looking at 2026 and 2027?
1: Let's get through 2025 before we start thinking about 2026. Yeah, we
2: were McMa- Madden is, you know, committed to USC from the 2027 class. That was – you know, push through from Dante Williams. And again, at a point where we were questioning, is Dante Williams even going to be on the coaching staff next year? So it, it really doesn't mean a lot. And a decommitment means as much as a commitment means at this point. Um He has yet to sit down with the new coaching staff at USC. Uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, he said he wasn't invited to the junior day. I, I mean, they can't have like a lot of communication with the 2026 class right now. So maybe, That message was forwarded to somebody that didn't forward it to Brandon, and he thought he wasn't invited. I I would have to assume USC would want him there. Um, I'm sure they're not looking at him as a prospect right now and saying, yeah, we don't want him. Because, again, it's 2026. You know, there's a lot of development. He's a big, long, tall corner. He's a talented player. But, you know, there's still a lot of development that has to go into his game. And there's more from an evaluation standpoint that I'm sure USC has to look at. And maybe they're looking, you know, to themselves and saying, look, we want to wait and see, you know, that was a a commitment that was taken from the old staff. And even though like Riley's still there and he was, to my knowledge, I mean, the one who sort of green lighted and and was involved to some extent in taking the commitment, Uh, you know, maybe he's kind of told this defensive staff, hey, listen, if you want a clean slate, if you will then that's the way we'll go about it. I, I don't think you need – I mean, again, you, you don't need to do it because Brandon Lockhart isn't really making any uh, decisions that are binding at this point. So, you know, it wouldn't really make a, make a great deal of sense to me that you would uh, try to convey that, hey, you know, we're not acknowledging your commitment at this point. Because down the line, maybe you want that commitment. Maybe you mm-hmm. say, oh, man, this guy is a five-star, and he is a great player. When it comes to the 2026 class, actually – getting ready to sign. So, you know, you don't want to necessarily rub any in the wrong way, but at the same time, I think it's just, there's a ways to go and whether he was committed or not, USC is going to have to continue to evaluate and recruit him. And so, yeah, it it, honestly, when he committed, it was like, okay, that's cool. You know, I was like, uh, do I really want, do I really want to do a future impact on a kid that, you know, we don't even know what the defense is going to look like. We don't, you know what I mean? There's like all these questions and um, you know, at that point in time, Dante Williams was saying that he wanted to be at USC and he felt like he was going to be at USC, but we'd obviously heard otherwise for a little while. Um, and so with these commitments, as I said, it may, makes you very cynical of the process when you see things like this, you know, um, and it's happened before. I mean, you know, Dante Williams was really, really aggressive, With taking commits and giving offers when he was the interim head coach. And again, that's sort of bolstering the perception of, you know, recruiting and being an elite recruiter. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, who did you actually land out of that group? I mean, that entire group of early commits that USC got at that point, none of them ended up at USC. I mean, they offered Aaron Butler, got him committed. He ended up decommitting. They uh, they, they ended up offering Dylan Williams, and that was really more of a Lincoln-Riley uh, commitment because I think that was one of the first kids that Lincoln-Riley had actually spoken to in that class, in the 2024 class. But it was kind of off the heels of, you know, Dante Williams recruiting him. Um, you know, there was a few things, Jet White. There was a few different uh, recruitments, that had gone on in in storylines where you know it was clear like they were just being very aggressive and i mean listen that's a good thing uh it's not a bad thing getting guys on unofficial visits and, and getting verbal commitments but you do have to close and you do have to get these guys on your roster and contributing for you you know for it to actually come to fruition where you can say oh man man this was a great recruiting effort this was an elite recruiting effort and For whatever reason, you know, over the past two cycles, I would say USC had been getting beat out straight up for guys left and right. And maybe that's not on Dante Williams. Again, maybe this is part of NIL. And I think to some extent you have to acknowledge that and be naive not to say that, hey, listen, Dante Williams was a hell of a recruiter at Nebraska. He was a hell of a recruiter at Oregon. He was a hell of a recruiter at USC. You know, he helped get uh, Corey Foreman. There was guys that he was involved with, not even at his position, that he helped recruit. Um, And it just seems like over the past few years, they've gotten some commitments. Again, guys like Dakota Fields, he was committed to USC at one point, and then it fell through. And, you know, it's one of those things where they they lost some guys, even at the position. I think the first sign of, wow, this is really no longer a go-to. We always talked about, you know, Dante Williams always had good options. He always cultivated good options at defensive back. Not so much a defensive tackle. We weren't seeing that. We weren't seeing guys getting on campus that USC, you know, just was at least giving themselves a, a chance to be able to recruit a player through an official visit. That wasn't necessarily true with the defensive back position. You saw where they would get good players at defensive back. But that 2023 class with the safety position, when you had all these different players, Warren Roberson and, um, I mean, there was like a handful of safeties that they had offered and they gone after in cornerback and they just didn't get any of them. And it was like, wow, that's the first time you've really seen where USC has not been able to really connect at the defensive back position. They always seem to get at least somebody. They seem to get somebody. Maybe, they, maybe it wasn't the first guy, but somebody else comes up. That's a four-star guy that they're able to rally in and get. And they just did not in that 2023 class. So, yeah, when it came to you know the questions of the defensive staff and, and how they were playing and if everybody was going to get replaced, you saw guys like Brandon Lockhart committing and uh, Reardon Madden committing and guys that are in the far future uh, that were committing to Dante Williams. But you kind of thought, hey man, like the ship has sailed at this point. You know, I mean, the next staff is going to come in and they're going to recruit these guys and uh, maybe yeah, you 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 have that relationship and. You know, certainly being at Georgia helps, you know, being at a, a program with a uh, very recent tradition um, in terms of championships and producing NFL players. I mean, Georgia certainly sees Dante Williams is an elite recruiter. You know, they, they hired him. There was not the results from the defensive back position from a development standpoint. I would say that you would think, okay, it was you know, more on the coaching side. I think it's more on the recruiting side and that, potential of being able to tap into Southern California and not just recruit the defensive back position, but just in general, recruit LA and have somebody who has, uh, again, their finger on the pulse. So if there is a top player that they really want, they swoop in. It's funny because USC spending so much time and effort recruiting Georgia that Georgia would hire a guy to, you know, have his finger on the pulse out here. Again, it's kind of a little bit of like, if Georgia's doing that, it tells me that there's still some pretty good players out here that they want to have uh, an idea, you know how good they are, and and whether they need to get in here and they need to recruit them and land them. has landed some good players from California. I mean, you know, Ernest Green is a starter for them. Uh, obviously, Brock Bowers has been a huge, huge addition to them. He's more of a Napa guy. He wouldn't be a guy that you know Dante Williams is really going to be able to recruit. Um, but nevertheless, they have you know had a little bit of success out there, so they must feel like, hey we wouldn't mind maybe having a few more California players out here. We're not going to have this huge pipeline of like, you know, 10 guys every cycle. We've got Georgia and Florida right here that we can recruit, but we would like to cherry pick maybe two guys every class or what have you. And we want a guy on our staff that can uh, give us good intel on these, you know, who's who, who's good players, who's not, and give us a chance to be able to get guys on campus. And if we want them, we can pull the trigger and we can actually have a chance at landing them.
1: Gerard, I wanted to move into our final two topics, which kind of can play into each other. Very briefly, we did, by we, I mean, uscfootball.com and our Parasol podcast, we had USC Athletic Director Jen Cohen on our Tunnel Vision, and she gave, you know, multiple updates on multiple things. You know, you can go and check out that full interview. I think it's very insightful. You can here to talk about a, a slew of different topics from construction to obviously NIL, which is what we're gonna talk about, excuse me, a little bit. But the facilities, you know, that is something, you know, that new football-specific structure that they're going to be building over there by Howard Jones Field. The big update that she gave was that the two reconfigured practice fields for football should be done by fall. So that is obviously a very good thing for USC. I'm interested to see what it's actually going to look like in the spring when we're out there for that. But by the fall, you have some like real change going on and you can kind of show recruits like, hey, look, this is what we got going on here. Things are changing for USC. We're getting some new facilities. So, you know, maybe you can build off a little bit of that buzz. But obviously the NIL thing about it was probably the biggest takeaway things wanted to To hear, you know, Jen Cohen, obviously, USC's NIL strategy, philosophy is something we have talked about ad nauseum on this show. And Gerard, every chance there's a NIL, something that comes up, you know, he's going, he's going, he's cooking on it. So obviously getting Cohen's thoughts on some of the aspects of NIL was obviously a big part of this interview and, you know, something fans gravitated to. But I I thought something interesting that she said that I'm going to read the quote here is that Cohen kind of confirmed that USC and the administration is anticipating rule changes regarding name, image and likeness from the NCBLA coming this summer. So that could possibly have more clarification for schools and for USC and how they will move forward when it comes to NIL. I'm going to read the full quote Come this summer, we are fully expecting that there will be an additional rule, additional rule changes that will allow for schools to actually be more directly involved with creating the brand opportunities and the deals themselves directly for our student athletes. So we will be evolving our NIL program in-house again. We're going to have new rules in place through the NCAA that will allow even further engagement from our staff and our coaches with our donor collective. Obviously, you know. I think a lot of fans were probably hoping, yeah, we're going to play high school players. No, that is never what USC was going to do, but it is interesting that they are anticipating rule changes for NIL this summer, as recently as this summer. And to see how that is going to change what USC's, you know, house of victory and moving it more in house and, you know, the coaches and the actual school getting more involved with the collective and the donors and all that. So, That is obviously a big change that they're anticipating that should happening. And based on all the stuff that is, you know, happened over the course of this month with some of the investigations going on, which we'll talk about, you know, just in a second here. It is an interesting time, Gerard, in the NIL space once again, as always.
2: Yeah, it it hasn't stopped being interesting. It's been interesting and it gets more interesting, and then it gets less interesting, and then it gets a little bit tiresome because it's a roller coaster of sorts. And so it's sort of rubber band as to you know what's happening with the NCAA and what's the NCAA's approach going to be in terms of regulation. Reading between the lines, and this is my own conjecture, is that what Jen Cohen seemed to say was, as a whole, the NCAA is going to promote schools being a bit more adjacent to their NIL operations. So collectives not being run by boosters and maybe some rules being involved where they cannot be involved with collectives that are then associated with the school, whether it be by name or there's some type of association and direction and it's being done more by an auxiliary staff because it still has to be done in a way that is not officially associated with the school because then we get into well if the schools are developing these brands and they are serving up these deals then do they become employers at some extent because there's always where the lawyers in this are trying to rope in the schools to try to get player benefits um, and to try to get them to be looked at more as employees. And the government wouldn't mind that either because then you get tax dollars from the universities for that. So the universities continue to try to avoid that and they try to keep that distance, but listening to what Jen Cohen was saying the way USC has done it, and of course, USC has some bias because they've already produced this, this format of, of which they have the House of Troy, which was Boulevard at one point, and they created this idea of, okay, we can have a structure of NIL and branding and guidance for NIL that is not directly associated with the university yet we have a bunch of former university employees that are involved with it. And there are people that understand USC. They have relationships with USC and they are not boosters in any way. I mean, House of Victory, in terms of administration managerial standpoint, they're not boosters. Spencer Harris is not a booster. Spencer Harris used to be director of personnel under Clay Helton. So you have you know people that are professionally involved with this that are not coming from a fan standpoint. They're not coming from a booster donor standpoint. They are running this more as a business and a sort of administration, um, a, a company that is built to help with the connection between corporations, brands, and the athletes themselves. So, what I see again, to try to say it, maybe in other words, is that the NCA is going to push harder to promote and maybe make it more difficult for the booster backed collectives that are out there just you know, going crazy and throwing money at kids and what have you and and limiting maybe what their representation can be, and maybe even making rules of punishment. For how involved they are with NIL and paying kids and saying, listen, if you're going to have a collective that is associated, even in an unofficial way, and again, I know it's it sounds so complicated, it's a little confusing, but it's like there's just a difference between House of Victory and then some of these other collectives that are like the AM collective. I mean, there was one AM collective, which the NCAA, I think, came in and said Texas AM cannot be acknowledge or like associate it in any way with this collective like you have to abolish it because it's not being run by people that are taking into account any rules whatsoever now you know the response of some of these schools has been like mind your own business NCAA
1: (laughs) this is this is
2: the private sector and you have absolutely no uh you, you
1: can't standing
2: you, yeah, you, you you have no authority over what these boosters do with their money. And because it's legal from a standpoint of state law now in all these states, you know, paying players and, uh, you know, even high school kids, uh, they're saying, well, the NCAA doesn't have any real leg to stand on. However, and we've spoken about this before, the NCAA does have the ability to put pressure on the universities. And indirectly put pressure on the boosters, you know, give rules to universities to say, listen, if somebody is going to give money to you, that person all of a sudden falls under the umbrella of regulation for your university. So if you're going to have a collective and these people are involved with this collective and this collective is somehow involved with players that are playing for you and there's any connection there whatsoever. Uh, and, again, it's hard maybe to prove connections in certain standpoints, you know, when it comes to economics, when it comes to financial connections, because, again, you're dealing with the private sector and you're dealing with kids getting money and agents. And, and, and you know, with the high school kids, I talked about this with Manase Atete. You know, somebody brought up the point that he's a foreign exchange student. Foreign exchange students can't receive NIL. And it's like, yeah, but, uh, their trainers can, and their god uncles can, I mean, they're not the ones with the bank accounts. It's the people around them and they're the ones getting the money and then they give it to the kids if they give it to the kids. And that's, you know, some of the sort of shady aspect of NIL and why you want to have, um, more people that are involved that are professional, that are doing things, um, on the up and up, uh. But it's but it's it's difficult again we're seeing so many different mechanics that are of professional football and professional sports that are trying to work inside this format of amateurism and it's just like no it just doesn't really work you know you've got a freaking Lamborghini and you're putting four parts from like a f-150 in there it's like dude that ain't gonna work man it's just it's not. It's this machine. They're just two different things, you know? They're both like engine parts, but these are completely different types of engines. And so I think, you know, it, it will be interesting. I, what I did not get from Jen Cohen was that there are going to be rules that were going to punish or go after um, certain approaches to NIL in terms of paying players and. Again, you know, what can the NCAA do? There's a lot of saber-rattling that you can do, but it's really, you know, for me, it's always what you can enforce. What do I always say? It's not a rule if you can't enforce it. Mm -hmm. It's just not
1: tampering if you can't prove it.
2: (laughs) it, Yeah, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, there's that aspect of things, but there's also, like, just to feel like the NCAA is moving in a direction uh, that would you know, force schools or maybe more their boosters to be able to have to come into the light with what they're doing officially through agencies or something that would check in with compliance. Because there's some of these things that exist, but I'm telling you right now, and this kind of segues into this investigation with Tennessee. let
1: segue, baby. Give it to it, me.
2: It, there's, there's the aspect of... Interpretation with this. And this is always an issue with recruiting. We've talked about this even before NIL was a thing in terms of media access and how some schools allow complete media access to recruits on campus while they are visiting these universities. And there are other schools like USC, which are basically like, we'll revoke your credentials to covering the team if you make eye contact with these kids. Mm -hmm. It's like, What's the deal here? Like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Well, we interpret the rules such and such and such. It's like, well, how come these other schools don't interpret the rules that way? I don't see them being sanctioned. So you're basically handicapping yourself or you're just making rules to make rules. They don't really make sense as to what the NCAA is actually doing. And, And of course, you can take the well, you know, we're the ones who got sanctioned. For doing this this and this and there are other schools who are doing even worse but we're the ones that got sanctioned so we have to overstep you know we have to go the extra mile to make sure that we're within compliance and that i think to some extent has been used as an excuse in some situations you know there's been issues where usc's handicapped themselves in recruiting quote-unquote because of sanctions and you think sanctions because he just didn't really want to do things that way you didn't want to really go head-to-head with Oregon in that way or Texas in that way you know when it comes to unofficial visits and what you know USC does and what other schools do so I mean it's convoluted and it's inconsistent to begin with now you bring in NIL and you have this whole other book of rules and things that are vaguely written which leave a lot open to interpretation and this particular investigation uh, with Tennessee football, which Tennessee, by the way, just got over being investigated, which I mean, if I recall, they were accused of giving kids money in McDonald's brown bags like that. It was like ridiculous, crazy rule breaking. And I, I mean, I don't even remember what the what, what did they get sanctioned for? Like, what, what were their punishment for for what they actually uh, ended up uh, doing and, and being accused of. I, I didn't really follow through because they're, to my knowledge, still Bo eligible.
1: You're talking about Tennessee's first run?
2: Yeah, yeah. When they had to fire uh, their head coach, Jeremy Pruitt, and they're, you know, really the whole coaching staff uh, for a large part was um, deemed uh, being involved to some extent or another, and they basically just, you know, used that as a reason to get rid of Jeremy Pruitt.
1: I just saw that they had. Uh, hold on, I'm gonna find it right here. I just had it. I have a bunch of stories up, so I can rehash it. Well, they didn't yeah. leave.
2: They didn't lose 15 scholarships, uh, cycle, and they didn't get two years bowl band, and they didn't get Missy Cowboy threatening to give them the death penalty from Notre Dame. No, no conflict of interest there. So you know, it certainly wasn't anywhere near what USC got from a penalty standpoint, yet it seems so much more egregious. So much more egregious.
1: Yeah, I have the the run here for I I believe it was 200 violations over three seasons that came down to failure to monitor monitor, unethical conduct, head coach responsibility, direct payments to prospects, impermissible paid visits, Um, some of the Penalties include five years of probation, a reduction of a reduction in football scholarships by the total of twenty-eight during the during the term of probation. So twenty-eight in five years, including at least two scholarships each year. Yeah,
2: two year, uh, each year.
1: Wow. Yeah, um, a reduction in football unofficial visits by a total of forty weeks during the term of the probation. Um, a total twenty-eight week ban on recruiting communication. During the term of the probation, including at least three weeks per year. Well,
2: here's the thing. So they're on probation.
1: Yes, currently on probation.
2: To have anything like this pop up while you're on probation. I mean, That's that's bad. Yeah, that's really, really bad. Now, again, when you look at the allegations and what they actually got punished for doing, that was really bad. And you see what the punishment was. And it's like, wait a second. The, USC never was even accused of paying recruits. They were yeah. never accused of that. That was never even part of the case file that the NCAA had against USC. It was all about Reggie Bush getting money from someone who is a friend of his stepdad that had a prior relationship with him, which came down to like some money for his Impala. I mean, yeah, not his Lamborghini, not his avalanche not his ford explorer decked out it was his impala and it was like wheels and i think it was like his stereo and his alarm system or something which came out to be i don't know 2400 or something it really i mean at the end of the day like what they actually got punished for it was a joke so I, i do understand the well they're gonna go after usc harder like that's i mean that is what it is that's not like homer usc guy you're going, oh, yeah, I'm being dramatic. That's just proof in the pudding of what the NCAA did, and what and what they tried to do on top of it. Now, you know, <laughs> Tennessee. I guess you know everybody's kind of laughing at how aggressively they come back after the NCAA, which is very much par for the course when you look at quite a few of these universities dealing with the NCAA. When you look at Miami, when you look at Penn State. I mean, they get right back in the NCAA's face and says, oh, yeah, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Now, we'll say these are state schools outside of Miami. Miami's a private school. But Penn State, Tennessee, they use the state to back them to say, what are you going to do about it? And that was a big departure from what USC did. From everything we heard, from the lawyers we spoke to, some of those lawyers that actually had worked for the NCAA, Committee of Infractions, like they've been involved with the NCAA, were telling us, "What is USC doing? What's their legal counsel?" Like they're they're just keeping their heads down and just going along with everything the NCAA says. Like why are they doing this? We heard that so many times. This is a little bit before Chris Trevino's time with USCFootball.com, but Dan, myself, we were involved with this and we were talking with all these different people. And I will tell you from Jump Street. Todd McNair flat out said USC isn't doing a damn thing about anything. They're done. They gave up before that was even announced. Their punishment was announced. They are not going to fight this at all. And I'm like, how can they not? Like, this doesn't seem right. Like, it seems like you definitely got scapegoated. There seems to be a lot here that you guys can can argue against, right? Like an appeal, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, listen, man. I got my own lawyers now. I'm not worried about it. NC's going to go where they, they, they're, they're just like not going to push back at all. And he was right. He was right. The Tom McNair ended up getting the bag. And USC got the middle finger from the NCAA. So this is, again, when we start talking about NIL and USC waiting around for the NCAA to make rules that are going to be more in line with their thinking, you are skeptical of that. You have to be a little bit. Cynical of yeah, really? You're waiting on the, the NCAA that 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 really screwed you guys over with Reggie Bush. I mean, again, there was no recruits that were paid. There was there was there was none of that that was going on. That what was happening was you had a guy that was you know basically a street agent trying to help develop an actual sports agency where they were going to make Reggie Bush their figurehead. Reggie Bush was going to be the name that was going to attract all these other players to this new sports agency. Now these guys didn't have a lot of, they didn't have any real uh, experience being sports agents or negotiating deals. They hired a guy that I think got his license stripped from being an agent to be like their head guy. So the whole thing was just sort of like, okay. And Reggie smelled it out. That's why he ended up going to Michael Orenstein. Because he could tell, yeah, you're my boys. But, man, you guys don't know what the hell you're doing? This is millions of dollars we're talking about. I could be the first-round pick in the NFL draft. I got these other guys, these other agencies that have been around for years and negotiated They've got a bunch of different first-round picks, you know, that are a part of their agency and are represented. I mean, I got my stepdad and you guys doing this? Like, this is not going to work out so well. And so these guys are trying to get USC or they're trying to get Reggie Bush away from USC. They're literally trying to get USC, uh, they're hurting USC in the Reggie Bush situation, which is so ironic. Like the NCA is going after USC because Reggie Bush is associating himself and got you know a few thousand dollars from some guys that wanted to get him to leave USC. Like it's totally bizarro world. And Again, USC just went along with it from everything we see, from an administrative standpoint, from a legal team standpoint. And there are names that were called out, and people that were mentioned. And I'm not going to sit here and, and, you know, I don't want for the hearsay or other people's opinions, you know, calling people out. But trust me, there were people at USC at the time, and I don't know if all of them are still at the time, but they're like, dude, what are these guys doing? Why in the world would they just stand around and allow USC to get thrown under the bus like that. Now, again, private schools, so it's a little different. It wasn't like they could get behind the UC system or, you know, a bunch of lawyers from the state that were going to help USC out and the PAC 12 completely abandoned USC. I mean, that was like, Oh man, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're hurt. They're limping around. Let's uh, let's circle the wagons a little bit here, like vultures and take advantage of the situation. So, you know, it, it was like a lot of a planets aligning, but You know, when you look at this and you look at the approach from these these programs right now, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, Tennessee and and Texas A&M, and it goes back to even with Jimbo Fisher and what he talked about when Nick Saban called out Texas A&M for paying recruits. He went immediately on this diatribe of Texas state law. And that was a tell, in my opinion. That was, oh, so they don't give a crap about the NCAA. They don't care about breaking NCAA rules. They're just concerned with with playing within the constraints of Texas state law, because if they do that, then they can use Texas state law to go after the NCAA if the NCAA goes after them. That was a tell. And that's exactly what Tennessee is doing. And that's what, you know, maybe Florida State will do the same thing. I, I don't know if they've been as aggressive, certainly not publicly. Now, Miami, again, private school. I mean, their lead booster. Uh, um, was it Mark Lopez? I can't remember what, what's his name. Uh, the the head guy that is kind of like the billionaire that's very vocal. He he told, he literally not not not. This is not my words. He told the, the I think the NCAA they can go fuck themselves. I think that's exactly what he said.
1: Excuse my language, but that is what he said. Ruiz. In his article, Ruiz, Mark Ruiz, I think is his name, and <laughs> quoting Gerard, the NCAA can go fuck themselves. <laughs> I mean, you're going to tell me that
2: these schools have not seen this coming, that they have been acting aggressively and been very loose with how they've approached recruiting and offering kids money to take visits, to offering kids money to commit. All of these things that the NCAA calls uh, inducement, you're telling me that they haven't been doing this when they're sitting back and this is the, the reaction that you get? From the Tennessee Chancellor. Like this, it's it's there's no way. There's no way they're not sitting there and in the last two, three years been going, we'd like to see the NCAA trying to make a run at us. Please, please do it. Let us make a mockery of you. This will be the last straw. And that's exactly maybe what we're seeing right now. Maybe, you know. The, the thing is here's the weird thing about the NCA though, is that they're represented by these presidents. I mean, the NCA are these schools, right? It's, it's yeah, it's an organization that's supposed to oversee. But like I said, with Missy Conboy being a part of the Notre Dame athletic department for, I don't know how many years she was part of the committee of infractions that looked over USC's investigation, which again, Hello? Conflict of interest though? I mean, Notre Dame rival with USC? Why would you have somebody from, a, you can't get somebody from another school to, to look at the case? She kind of has a reason to see USC get buried here. And she's the one who made these ridiculous, uh, these faint, uh, intimidating sort of uh, comments about how USC should get the death penalty and should literally not be, their game should not be televised for the next two seasons. That's what should happen is what she put in her little comment section after the aga- allegations, which you are like, oh, well, I mean, that's a little bit that, that would probably hurt Notre Dame. <laughs> I mean, Notre Dame playing USC and it's not on television. You think that's going to go over well with NBC? Now, I don't think she really wanted that, but she wanted to say it just to just to kind of like put the nail in. Oh, man, they loved it when they went after USC and they buried USC and USC said, thank you. Can we have another? Can we have another? Pat Hayden flew out there for the appeal and made some speech before he even got off the plane back to L.A. They already said, nope, we're not your, your sanctions. Nope, they're good. We like we, we like our judgment. Yep. Paul D. He says thumbs up that whole that whole situation. And it's frustrating, I know, for Trojan fans to hear because it's like, God, what's going on? What is the administration doing? But that is just how it played out. And so now we're looking forward and we have to see, you know, is USC just on the wrong side of this whole thing again? They've just played it wrong and thought, oh, you know, we're going to play it safe. We're going to be very conservative. And and they're not the only ones. Notre Dame has, has been conservative. There's been plenty of schools that have been more conservative. But when I see Texas and Ohio State approaching things as aggressively as they are, That tells me, uh, I don't know, Ohio State seems to have a lot of representation within the NCAA. and They always seem to have a decent idea of where the rules are. And they've got pegged. They've gotten in trouble before. But they haven't really, they've been able to avoid some things when they look like they should have been hit harder. I mean, Alabama, you could argue, recently has kind of been a little bit of a barometer as to, sort of where the rules are a little bit. And they've been, you know, hit pretty hard by sanctions in the past. I mean, they actually did get sanctioned pretty pretty hard years and years ago before Nick Saban. But the Saban regime, I mean, he put together a really good administration and a really good bunch of people around him that were very much on their P's and Q's about that. I think I've told the story about where their coaches – and I don't know if they've done this recently, but they were doing this for years – it's like 2015, 2014, I was talking to a high school coach. I heard this from a, 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 a assistant college coach as well, where when their assistants went down and visited off campus anywhere for any reason, unofficial visits to, you know, just the, the, the high schools to meet coaches, to meet the players, in-home visits, they had people signing affidavits that would say there was no illegal activity here. Just so they had that. So, like, if anybody came two months later and said, oh, yeah, this coach paid me money or this coach paid for my tutor or this coach did that or did that. They did this illegal thing. They'd say, no, we didn't. We ha- They signed right after we visited them. There's the date. There's their signature saying that there was nothing legally done. We did nothing illegal. There was no impermissible benefits. There was, you know, we, we, it was all within the rules. And they had themselves covered because, like, what do you say? Why did you sign this? Well, uh, I mean, at the time, I didn't know what I was doing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's, the, that's pretty hard. You know, the nca they want the easy way out of that. They don't want to sanction Alabama. They don't want to deal with Alabama. So it's like, no, oh, I'm sorry, man. We can't really do anything about it. You said they didn't do anything illegal. You know, maybe the, the check didn't pass or whatever. They didn't clear. But at the point, you said it, it, they didn't do anything illegal. So you can't go back in time now and say that wasn't that wasn't true. And so, I mean, that's a school that's always seemed to know kind of uh, the temperature of the room. And Texas, you know, which was really, from everything I heard, the school that put in motion the sanctions and everything that went up against USC. That Matt Brown was pissed off because USC was in Texas and they started to grab guys. And it was really at the Vince Young pro day where the Yahoo reporters started to get all their leads, quote-unquote, on this Lloyd Lake guy and his and his relationship with Reggie Bush and how Reggie Bush was getting all this money and his parents were getting free, free flights and they had this house and blah, 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 blah. That all came from the Vince Young pro day. So, and then there was this weird uh, Dallas Morning News expose on the tavern when they used to go down to the Papadakis Tavern and USC used to have official visits go there. They used to have dinner at the Papadakis uh, Tavern. And there was this thing about how, like, oh, there was this like seem illegal stuff going on and USC was doing this and doing that. And I was like, why is the Dallas Morning News reporting on that? That's uh, interesting. So Texas is another school that's very lawyered up. Very, very lawyered up when it comes to the NCAA. A lot of people accuse them of what went down with SMU as well. And so when they're out there with their pancake club and all this other nonsense with you know, Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, out there recruiting uh, and they're aggressive. You start to think "Mm, you you kind of feel like there's, there's, there's a sign there that in terms of regulation, in terms of rules, bylaws, um, it's going more towards, you know, do whatever you want to do and whatever you can do to get these guys than it is the other way. So again, I know it's a roundabout way of saying I'm very skeptical that the NCA is really going to make any changes that are, that are significant enough that, you know, USC is all of a sudden going to be in the catbird seat. Um, I think USC is still going to have to do some things differently from a philosophical standpoint with their, either their collectives, just, just, you know, in terms of how they're recruiting high school kids, um, you know, maybe the NCA is going to again do some things to try to promote the way USC has done things with, with uh, house of victory and, have it to be more associated with the school without being officially associated with the school. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure there's some things, but it just seems like the schools that are being very aggressive and that have been accused of just going out there and paying kids to go to their school and they have contracts and all this other stuff to say, hey, you know, you commit here, we're going to give you five hundred thousand dollars. Those schools are like, doesn't matter, man. We'll sue you. It's in the it's in the private sector now. We'll sue you and we will win. And you will go back to your little hole in Indianapolis and, you know, we won't hear from you again until, you know, after Groundhog's day or whatever. I, I, you know, whatever becomes of the NCAA after all this is done, you know, I I think they themselves are going to have to take a look in the mirror and realize that they have to become something different than they've been, you know, in previous years. And there's gotta be some collective bargaining that came up on the boards today. Yeah. We've been talking about that. I don't know if that means player unions. There's a lot, again, there's so many professional mechanics right now that are trying to work within this format of amateurism. It's, it's just not going to work. It's just very clear It does. Not, it's not going to work. They've got to change things, and they've
1: got to ch- make some radical changes. So at this point, do I kind of go into the, the lawsuits, the investigations going on right now? Yeah. There was I mean, so let's much. talk there about was, the specifics so of
2: what's going on. I know I, I rattle on there about, about everything, but – I feel like it ropes into this entirety, like it's a bigger conversation as it um, connects with USC, you know, and how it affects Trojan fans. But yeah, I think you know, it, for people that don't know what exactly is going on with Tennessee or even Florida State for that matter, yeah, it's good to get the bullet points on that.
1: Yeah. So apolo- uh, apologies, because I have all these sources and stories about it open, so I'm kind of bouncing back and forth, but. Tennessee, actually I'll start with Florida because Florida was the first one that had come up earlier and it came up on the radar, but we didn't actually like talk about it. I think we had flirted with potentially talking about it, but we wanted to see if more would come out or what have you with, you know, FSU. And it was kind of a meme at that point because FSU had just obviously been uh shafted out of the, the college football playoff and now they had some NCAA uh, violations and investigations going on so it was just not a great time to be a, a You think FSU they knew fan. Chris? You think that was part maybe, of it? Maybe. Maybe they're penalizing him for a pending pending um investigation I mean, to come. A That's very that was very interesting uh conspiracy theory you have there but FSU yeah I think it was uh right after the national championship a couple a week or two after that or before that. I can't remember the exact timeline but in January of this year, you know, it was announced that they are getting hit with some some penalties for the for the uh, for the Florida State football program. That was a kind of a quick turnaround on their investigation. They announced it on January 11th, uh, which is going to include two years probation and disassociating with its NIL collective for one season, and it directly is in. Uh, contradict or rule breaking of the uh, rules violation of rules using nil offers as recruiting inducement and it seems to stem around a fsu assistant coach offensive coordinator alex atkins who i think we've talked about on the show for being a really good recruiter the the university also must disassociate with a specific booster for three seasons for three years excuse me so these were kind of the first uh, penalties being, you know, laid out against. It feels like for NIL specifically, and uh, Florida State's NIL collective is the Rising Spear. That is their main collective. That is the one they must disassociate with for a year. And then this one that came out recently, I believe it was this week, that the NCAA will be investigating. Tennessee for their own batch of NIL violations and some of the reporting has it out there as both level two and level one infractions which are the highest that you can get for a program and as we talked about with Tennessee they were leveled with some some penalties for their violations you know several a couple years ago they had 18 level one violations and they had to pay an eight million dollar fine on top of you know all those probation[s] that I, I kind of mentioned there, but specifically it deals with their NIL and specifically with the Spire Sports Group, which is their main collective. And you know, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, the the the, the name that's been coming up with the stories is obviously with uh, quarterback Nico Iamaleava, who when we first started this this podcast. He was kind I of the, sat down. Yeah, he was kind of the uh, I don't want to say poster child, but the poster child for like NIL when it was first starting out with this big like nine million dollar, three million dollar deal, whatever it is to go to Tennessee. That was kind of like the first big like, oh, this is NIL. This is what it's going to become. So his name has come up with this impending investigation now obviously Tennessee is going to come back hard. They've already uh, pushed back against the allegations. Uh, their Chancellor has already sent a a letter out there to the NCAA calling uh, you know these factually untrue and procedurally fraud and the Tennessee Attorney General and the Virginia Attorney General both have announced lawsuits against the NCAA. I believe that came out today for antitrust violations. So, Gerard, this is something we already kind of knew what was coming with all these, you know, state laws being written about NIL as a way to, you know, back up their schools whenever a time like this occurred. It was going to come to the courtrooms and the states, the state attorney generals and internal councils and school councils and all this stuff Basically, what I'm saying is it's going to get very messy. And is this? I don't want to say the beginning of the end because that's not what I'm trying to say. Is it the beginning of the great lawsuits of NIL? Is this the next era? Are we entering the next era of NIL or is the this next the purge? purge? <laughs> yeah, you know, like when uh, like uh, ice ages. I can not think they call them ep- epics or something. Whatever. Is this the next like epic of uh? The timeline of NIL in college? We'll see. Um, I do think, and we haven't really heard much from the
2: Florida notice of allegations, at least to my knowledge, but that was, I think, in line with Jaden Rashada. And remember, Jaden Rashada was originally committed to Miami. And one of his representatives of NIL had gone on Twitter. Michael Caspino, and talked about, you know, why Miami did such a good job recruiting him and kind of called out Florida's collective at that point, being run by a bunch of millennials. And then, you know, he ends up decommitting from Miami and ends up at Florida. It's like, what the hell is going on here? And then that goes south, and a lot of people feel like, you know, Florida basically took DJ Lagway instead of Jaden Rashada. But Jaden Rashada ends up at Arizona State of all places, and there were so many rumors about how much Jaden Rashada was being paid and et cetera. And I think that again, that was the beginning of just fluctuating ridiculous numbers that were not true. But nevertheless, the chink in the armor of all this, and I've talked about why I think some schools are very um, resistant and almost, you know, they're almost. Uh, kind of antagonizing the NCAA a bit. Uh, certainly from a collective standpoint, the boosters are like, what are you going to do? Like you don't have subpoena power. You can't get into the financials of these people. Yeah, that's true. Unless somebody turns state evidence. Okay. It's just like the mafia. It's one of these things that if there's somebody that it feels like they got wronged in the situation and they got scammed out of money There's always that possibility that turn around. Did you
1: say
2: Here are the receipts. Here are the receipts, and all of a sudden, the NCAA now has information financially on people and things that they would not be able to get otherwise. So that's something to watch and to be interested about, and because it doesn't just affect Florida, it affects maybe other schools that were involved in his recruitment. Okay. Now you fast forward and you look at Florida State and that situation. Now we know that there was one, Manase Atete that was committed to USC last summer, a player that we talked about NIL being the driving factor in his recruitment for months. Okay, we went saw him at the Under Armour camp. He was good. He was raw. You're like, okay, this is interesting, but he's not going to end up at USC. Okay, there's all these other schools involved with him. He'll probably end up Miami or he'll end up at Florida State. That was what we heard from many, many people at that point. The fact that USC even got an official visit was a little bit of a surprise. It was like, okay, that's cool. He went up to USC unofficially, really liked it, had a good relationship with Josh Henson. He liked Josh Henson a lot. So we're like, okay, I mean, all things equal, if this was like old school recruiting, USC would have a very good shot at this kid. But we know that NIL is a huge factor. And thus far, USC has not been that school that is going to be super aggressive with high school kids and offering them money. It's going to be like, Hey, you want to enroll? We have these great branding deals, yada, 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 but it's not going to be, Hey, you know, we'll send you a check next week. So he gets on campus and he turns around he commits after that first week of June. And we were all shocked. And we're like, okay, so wait, maybe this has changed. Now we didn't hear that from any sources from the collectives or from USC standpoint, So we were still confused a little bit, but it's like, wait, okay, Dakota Fields commits, you have this really good week. And everybody's like, okay, Taylor Tatum's going to commit, the running back at Longview. I mean, we're hearing all this stuff. Like USC's just going to destroy everything now. I mean, they're just going to kill it on the recruiting trail. Their class is going to be like 15 dudes, and they're all going to be four-star dudes. Like it's going to be this really good recruiting class that they're going to have. There has to be a change in philosophy here. There has to be a change in NIL. And I still, to this day, do not really know what was said on those visits because these kids thought one thing. But man, oh, man, did that change because (laughs) within a month, um, I guess those checks didn't clear or no checks came and people were like, "Uh, well, and then other schools got involved. And again, it was during a dead period that you had decommitments from guys like Dakota Fields so you're like there wasn't like there wasn't an unofficial visit or there wasn't now with Dakota Fields he did take the unofficial visit to Oregon so I I should say that to be fair he did actually unofficially visit Oregon it seemed like that was already like going to happen though and and I think with him he did have that relationship with Oregon prior and we thought he would end up at Oregon I mean he was silently committed to Oregon for quite a while so I still I'm not of the belief that NIL was the driving factor in him flipping it, 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 it may have had some things I mean Ryan Pelham we hear NIL was definitely a factor and him flipping um I mean and which is almost ironic at this point seeing that Oregon has signed every freaking receiver after his commitment <laughs> After they got his letter of intent, I mean, they they brought in like like what it's like two transfers. They're probably going to get uh, uh the the kid out of um, was he from Idaho, Caitlin Blair or, or what Gatlin it? Caitlin Blair, Caitlin Blair. Um, yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's ironic because you know Ryan Pellin was kind of you know trying to see what was going on with USC in the portal, and there was all these rumors like they're going to get these top receivers and recruit basically over him. And that was kind of one of the reasons why he was looking to take visits to Cal and Oregon and Arizona. And he ends up, you know, going to, to, to Oregon and Oregon gets like, you know, three recruits uh, at the wide receiver position afterward. But anyways, I digress. I mean, that's part of the the NIL and and why, you know, the high school kids are not super happy about it now because of the transfers. Uh, But I think, you know, with Manasseh Tete, that's a situation where he gets to Florida state. And by the way, uh, Alex Atkins was his lead recruiter. Um, <laughs> and he's um, got no, he's not really supposed to have any contact with anybody. You know, he, he can't visit there. It's a dead period. What changed in his recruitment in that short of time to commit to USC and then all of a sudden flip and decommit? It wasn't like, you know, USC had gotten midseason. They lost some games to, 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 to Oregon and and Washington, et cetera. And you're like, oh, I'm not feeling it anymore, whatever. It it was just no reason to decommit at that time. And it was very sort of suspicious, in my opinion, um, how that all went down. And now, you know, Florida State's, you know, got these sanctions that they're, I guess, going to deal with. I mean, I'm sure they're going to appeal, but um, it is the position coach that um, was recruiting Manasseh Tete. And um, I think – I mean, it, it could be just, you know, the 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 tip of the iceberg, if you will, where there's all these other schools. I mean, you know, Florida State wasn't really looked at as being the most aggressive. They really were recruiting pretty well last year. They didn't do so much so well the cycle before. Like it, you didn't really feel like there was that connection. Um, when we talk about like the five families, you know, in Florida as well. I mean, Florida was was has never really been looked at in that way in terms of being super aggressive Tennessee on the other hand. Yeah. Tennessee for sure. And Texas A&M for sure. Um, and Oregon for sure. But I, I've always said, you know, with Oregon and Nike, that's a whole different animal up there. And that's um, you know, Nike can throw money at kids all day long and uh, a it's Nike. And and you know, I, I, it's, I have a hard time believing the NCAA is going to go after Nike with all the money that Nike has invested in college football. And then B for Nike, it's a, it's just an easy gamble, you know. They can throw a bunch of money at, that, you know, ten kids, and just a couple of those guys turn out to be NFL pros. It's like they could get their money back for that, you know, with endorsement deals and put shoes on those guys. So that's a little different, you know. They can actually make money out of NIL, you know. Oregon in a in a weird way can make money off of NIL, which most of the college football programs are not going to make money they're just going to spend money on NIL. So, we'll see, you know, you're asking is this like the beginning? Um I don't know. Maybe it is. I, I, again, it's like what Tennessee is saying is you can make all the allegations you want. You can, you know, say we're investigated and and all this stuff and then we're getting the death penalty, but at the end of the day, we'll turn around and sue you. And it will go to the Supreme Court, and we'll play football, and we'll pay kids all the way to that, and we'll win most of multiple national championships. You know, thumbing our nose at you while we're doing it, and they're going to play that game, and that's you know that's where they're putting their chips. And there's a lot, there's a, quite a few programs that are doing that basically. So you do have to wonder if uh, this is again just saber rattling by the NCAA, and it really, even though they're coming through and saying, listen, we're going to penalize you, and again. Tennessee is on probation, so they're donezo. Like, this is really bad for them. And they're just like, you know, no, it's not. <laughs> like, it's, this is really bad for you. Like, you guys are really a joke. No, we're not.
1: <laughs> I didn't even realize how long we've been going on this topic.
2: It's a good topic. It's an interesting it's a, it's topic. It's a good
1: topic. It's an it's important the future topic. future of college
2: football. This is the future of college football. If people are going to pay attention to it, If it's gonna continue to somehow retain some of its amateurism and some of the, I don't know if that's naive to think, uh, uh, the passion of for the game, you know, and and guys playing for the passion of the game and playing because they love the game, that sort of aspect of it, which I think you know attracts a lot of fans, the representation of this is my school, this is where I'm from, I have this actual connection to these players that. You don't get what the NFL. If if any of that is retained, it's all here, Um, or becomes a farm system for the NFL. And they say, you know what? We're not going to pay players. We're not going to, you know, have them as employees. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to adjust this so it can work with the mechanics of a professional game. We're just going to go do what the Ivy League does, and we're not going to give guys even scholarships. We're just going to be universities. We'll play football but the the 100,000 seat stadiums and facilities and all these you know coaches making hundreds of millions of it's done you know we'll we'll have the Rancho Cucamonga Trojans and we'll have the Long Beach uh 49ers and we we'll, you know that's what it'll be it'll be like minor league baseball it'll be more popular than minor league baseball because football is a more popular sport but it'll be akin to that it will be more along those lines and then you got to talk to Shotkin about how that all works Because I don't know how minor league baseball works with the drafts and everything like that. But I mean, it, 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 it's, there's going to be a fork on the road and I I don't know if you can kind of sort of be both. It just seems to me like you definitely, um, there's just some programs that are just, there's too few programs that this is sustainable. And quite frankly, I mean, we're not even uh, mentioning the Jeff Hatfield, um, the,
1: uh,
2: are talking about the Boston, Boston College. college. Yeah.
1: Um, if you don't know, took or left his head coaching job at Boston College to become the new Green Bay Packers defensive coordinator, and this is not a guy who was fired, nothing like that. Just decided to leave the college game, and that has been a talking point uh, this offseason Has been you know college coaches or the college game losing some of their top. Talent, are coaching talent to the NFL, and a lot of people have been pointing to, you know, NIL and the transfer portal and the the way college football is moving. And we'll continue to see what happens. But if college football continues to lose their best coaches, you know, Nick Saban just retired. You know, this was a another interesting move made by Hathley going to the NFL. So if these if this continues to happen, you know, college football has another another thing to deal with which is you know their their talent pool in the coaching realm getting smaller and smaller
2: Yeah, certainly and you know people will automatically point to well eric henderson coming from the rams and that's a professional coach coming back to college football but we don't know how long he's going to be back in college football i mean he he might uh, after you know flying all over the place and uh, they'll get a break here in, in February, but they're going to be right back after spring ball. I mean, you know, he has to get used to the grind of of it all. And, um, you know, that's one of those things that in the pros, man, you actually get time off. Um, Lincoln Riley talked a little bit about that. He was talking to Sean McVay about the off seasons in the NFL and. You know, they're different. I mean, you you have um, front offices and you have scouts and you you just things are segmented differently. And you coach, Um, you have to be involved to some extent to evaluations and what have you. But it's a very different game right now than college. I mean, college is there's no there really is no dead period. There really isn't because if you're going on vacation somewhere and you're not taking calls and making calls like somebody else is there's some young guy coming up, some coach is just trying to make his name and he doesn't have a lot of experience. And he's just like a former player somewhere. He's going to be grinding his ass off to at least be a commodity. There's that word again, as a recruiter. So that's something that, um, you know, it, it pushes everybody and the NCAA kind of sort of used to make rules. Where it's like, all right, nobody's allowed to do this. Then nobody's not like to give people a break to give the coaches a, an actual break. But like doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I remember just even going back to the Pete Carroll era, July the coaches would leave and they'd be gone off of campus for all of July. You you wouldn't see them on campus. Maybe one, two days they they have somebody maybe come in for an individual, but not like often, you know, and now it's like July is when you're waiting for guys to commit from all the June visits. Um, You know, there's always that last week of July, which uh, a lot of schools use, for the, uh, the sort of like the big unofficial visit weekend, you know, the Texas A&M pool party uh, and stuff like that, barbecues and what have you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like it, there's always something going with recruiting. So I can see, you know, now you've got the portal and you're trying to evaluate transfers and really all you're getting from an evaluation standpoint is just watching them, you know, play. Uh, with the high school kids, there's a lot less um, – opportunities to watch them in person again we're talking about like so many mechanics that have to change because you know the the game has changed and they're just still we're still working within the confines of like college football 2008 and it's like man we're, we're way 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 beyond that at this point so that job that he takes with the with the Packers is a very good job you know, people are looking at this as like, oh, you're taking a step down. I don't know. It's kind of like the argument with Matt Ince leaving North Dakota State to from being a head coach at the FCS level and being very successful. I think that's more the the thing is like North Dakota State is a is a power. They are the Alabama of the SCS level. And you're leaving that head coaching opportunity to be not even a defensive coordinator at USC, but a linebacker coach. I understand the perception of that him taking a step down to be a position coach at USC. It's interesting. It's not something that I would expect. Uh, but with Hafferty, I, I feel like you know, being I mean, a defensive coordinator in NFL is a pretty good gig to have. You know, he good has, gig. Yeah. yeah, he has some experience in the NFL. Um, he's been around for a little while, and he's you know rubbed elbows with some other good defensive coaches. You know, that's one step away from potentially being uh, a head coach in the NFL and you're part of that fraternity. So I don't know. I mean, Boston College, man, the ceiling is there. And you know that especially in this day and age with NIL, And he talked about that. That's why this is more of a discussion with him leaving. If he wouldn't say anything afterwards. And I don't know. I think it wasn't him saying anything. I think it was like a source that had talked to him from the quote that I saw. But I believe it. I believe that it's like, dude, what are you going to do with Boston College at this point in time? Like USC's having trouble recruiting and having a top 10 class. Boston College is not going to be able to get guys to be competitive to win conference championships against Florida State, Clemson, etc. Against Miami, against any of those schools on the East Coast. Um, And even, you know, against Penn State or, or Ohio State. I mean, however you cut it, every which way you look, you're not going to be competitive against those schools. And so, again, you know, what happens with Boston College? Are there going to be rules that ever make Boston College competitive again? I mean, were they were – they? you could argue, were they ever competitive? I mean, was there ever a point in time?
1: Uh, Matt
2: Ryan? What about Matt Ryan? <laughs> I mean, look, you could okay, ask Steve but- Sarkeesian that question. I mean, USC went over there to Boston College and had to
1: play Boston College, and they were competitive in that game. Um, but I mean, hold on, you know, I, hold on, hold on. I just want to tell a quick story. One of the oh, best yeah. games I ever saw as a kid, growing up, going to Maryland games, was when Matt Ryan was at Boston College and they were really good. And I think they were like number two in the nation. And they were coming to Maryland that season. But the the they reached number two, and then the week before they played Maryland, they lost to somebody. I forgot who they played. They lost. And then they dropped down to like seven or nine. So it took a little bit of a uh, shine shine off that game because they were supposed to be undefeated, you know, in the, the hunt for the national title. But I went to that game, pack game, it was snowing. It was a snow game, and we beat Matt Ryan and Boston College, and it was a super fun game. So yeah, yeah Boston College was kind of good at one point that's my so, point. So they ended up
2: ranked probably not even in the top 10, not even in maybe the top 15.
1: I'm going to I'm going to look it up right now. Just it I mean,
2: I right the point being, you know, how competitive has Boston College been in the modern era of college football? Somebody would argue they really haven't been. So if they're not competitive now, is there really any kind of difference? But I think the difference is if you're Boston college, you feel like, can you even win a game against USC? Can you even win mm-hmm. that one game? Or you just, you're, you're just like an FCS program and there's like the chances are minuscule that you're going to be competitive against many of the schools that you see. And you just don't have a chance and you have to sort of come to that realization. Like, like, you know, like if you are again, Yale playing at the FCS level where you're playing against programs outside your conference have sixty-three scholarship players. Now it's not the creme de la creme, but it's still got sixty-three guys getting scholarships. And you don't offer scholarships. So if you're, you know, an, an alum of Yale and you like Yale football, it, your expectations are different. And and that's just the question of, you know, does that now expand to a, a larger majority of college football? And does at some point do, do those schools come together and say, you know, like, we're gonna we're gonna do our own thing. You know, we're, we're not gonna. We're not going to go into this whole NIL era and paying and play. Like we're just, it's not sustainable for us economically. And from a rule standpoint, it's clearly like there's not enough that we can do enforcement wise to make these rules work. So we're just, we're not going to go down that road at all. And we're going to have a completely different, we're not going to have the best players plan. We're going to have guys that want to be here that want to actually just go to the school and they're going to be slower. <laughs> and Football's not going to be as exciting. But that's that's what we choose to do, and we're not going to get. It's not going to be a multi-billion-dollar um, industry that we're running uh, as a side gig, you know, to our to our colleges and our endowment. Um, it, it's going to be a lot less. It's going to be maybe maybe multi-million dollars, uh, but that's just how it is. That's just how it's going to be, you know. And you kind of have to make that choice uh, with with how things go because it, it just, I don't know. It, it seems like the hybrid, um, approach to it, just, I don't know, man. It, it, like I said before, pro amateur sports are usually not very popular sports, you know, like, I mean, racing and, and just track and field and things like, it's just like compared to the professional version of that. If there's a professional version, you know, that's just professional and it just, they just not run the same. It's not, there's just not enough money there usually. Um, gt3 and like the you know the rolex store. you've got you know some guys in there that are that are that are amateur and then some guys that are professional and it's like yeah it's popular but at the end of the day it ain't nascar you know i mean it's, it's like i i and that's just what i look at now i don't know if that's maybe that's um short-sighted and i just don't know Muff enough, enough about those sports that are pro-am but yeah it feels like you kind of got, I mean, I feel like you got to shit or get off the pot. You got to either go straight pro or you got to be straight amateur. If you're going to, it's going to be successful and work. And certainly if it's straight amateur and you do it to the point where you're not, you just say, we're not paying anybody. Um, You want to get paid. There's another avenue for you to get paid. And again, that becomes some type of form system, or maybe it becomes just the SEC. It's like, Hey, they've got, you know, 10 schools, 12 schools there. That they'll, they'll do that, you know, that they'll compete against each other, throwing money, you know, boosters that, hey, that'll be cool. But all these other universities that kind of want to focus more on being universities and keep uh, a presence from that standpoint, you know, that have the billion dollar endowments. They're just like, hey, you know what, we're going to go the way of the Ivy League and we're going to do our own thing in our own conference. And you're not going to get sued that way because there's the alternative to go somewhere else. You know, you can't force a restaurant to You know, uh, make chicken McNuggets, and it's like we're an Italian restaurant. You know, if you want chicken McNuggets, go to McDonald's. Go there's a bunch of places you can get chicken McNuggets. We serve Italian food here. You want to go get paid as a college football player? There are places you can do that. Um, You you can't do that here. You know, we're not we're not we're not going to allow that. And uh, none of our schools are going to pay players. There's not going to be any NIL. There's not going to be any endorsements. That's the rules. That's the rules. And um, then it's different. You know, then you can enforce it. But again, you're you're if there is that alternative somewhere else, which there kind of has to be, um, you're you're going to you're going to lose those players, you know, to that. Just just as I mean, again, my ignorance of baseball, I mean, how it works. I think in baseball is you've got the minor league and then you've got college. You most of your guys like your Deuce Robinsons, right? Like there's guys that have that chance to get contracts with the Major League Baseball, but they're going to put them through. the the, the minor league system first, but those guys are getting paid. They're getting paid good money, but they go through the minor league system first, or you choose to go to USC. And I mean, we'll take NIL like off the table just, you know, to, to make it simple. You go there and you get your scholarship or you get half a scholarship. Some of these guys don't even get full scholarships in baseball and you have to make that choice basically, you know, at that point. Now, obviously with NIL that changes things a little bit and guys actually can get paid in college. Um, you know, how close that is to whatever you get with the the NBL deals it has a lot to do with the, the bonus that you get, which depends on how highly you're drafted, you know, and if you're not drafted very high, you're not going to get a bonus. And so, you know, you can look at the NIL endorsement money that you might get and say, hey, you know, it's close enough. I can go to college and I can do my thing and I you know, have more freedom and like induces um, case. He, he can play football. You know, and, it's, and make that choice later. Like he's still trying to figure out, you know, what he wants to do, and so, um, you know, if you're but but if you're a good enough baseball player, yeah, you you just get paid straight out. And um, I don't know, man. I mean, like if you're like super super good, like do you actually just you don't even play in the minor leagues? They'll take you right up to the big leagues. I mean, I, I don't think there's any. I, I again, I don't watch baseball, so I don't know are so high school players that actually play baseball. I've never really noticed that being a thing. Like it was in the NBA for a while.
1: Did you just say other high school players that play baseball?
2: That no, that play major league baseball. They go straight
1: to the to, to the to the majors. Like um, high school, like right out of high school, boom. You're, you're no. Pitching. I think I think back then maybe again. I'm not the person to ask this, but I think <laughs> I think now they at least speed run them through the majors, like Meet minors. The minors, sorry. Yeah. yeah, speed run them through the uh, the minors. Like, the Orioles' number one pick right now has just been, like, speeding. He was drafted out of, uh, I think he was, like, 18 or 19 out of high school. And they have just been speed running him through the minors all last year. And he'll probably compete for opening day roster spots. So, even him, you know. Still got a year. Still, Still got a Lake year system. through the minors. Yeah, I mean, if. If you're like one of those like phenom kind of guys and you're a high school guy, I think at least it takes a year for you to get up to the uh the uh the major, which is
2: better for the sport. I mean, that's what basketball has figured out. The NBA has figured out that when they had that influx of high school players right to the NBA, yeah, one and guys, done, yeah, oh, the high they,
1: school guys, no, oh, high
2: school. no, high school guys. We're not yeah. Kobe, we're talking about um Kevin Garnett, you know, going back to Tracy McGrady. Um, that first group, there were some guys that were good and they showed that they could kind of play on that level. They could be contributors on that level. And then everybody and their brother thought they could do that. And it tore the game apart. Nobody was playing defense. Nobody knew how to pass because you're coming from high school and you're so dominant at the high school level. You can just go to the basket and dunk over people. You don't learn to shoot from the outside. You don't learn to pass, to play within an actual offensive system. Everything is ISO. So when you actually get the NBA and you can't do that anymore, you can't just run by people and dunk over them. You've got enough, you, you, your skills are like completely diminished. You, you can't really do much, and that became more and more of an issue. And then, then the NBA was like, we we are hurting our game by having guys come direct. Like it was cool in the beginning, but now we're seeing it deteriorate the actual brand of ba- basketball that people want to see. People want to see some passing. They want to see some shooting. They want to see defense. They just don't want to see a bunch of guys playing streetball out here. And there weren't even it wasn't even street ball because streetball doesn't really work in the confines of actual basketball. So it was it was a mess. It became a mess. I stopped watching NBA basketball kind of during that period. I was like, man, these dude, everything now is like guys just chucking up outside shots. They can't shoot. They've not playing defense. There's no like you're used to the Bulls and the Lakers and the Celtics and the Pistons and like you know Knicks and these these teams had systems and they had a personality. You identify them as oh man, this is really good defensive team. Oh, this is a good rebounding team. This is a team they run run, running the running pick is amazing. Stockton, Malone, like you had fundamentals within these teams, and then you get this influx of high school players, and they just didn't have fundamentals because they didn't get all that extra coaching in college and coming from high school, yeah, they're going to be able to dominate. It, it was a mess. And, and that will, you know, hurt uh, college football to some extent. Um, certainly, again, if you, you know, have to sort of split the talent pool, and you have just, you know, the good players have to go to the, to to the, uh, to, to whatever league conference division, whatever that they're going to be able to be playing, or minor league system, and then, everybody else who's not as good to get that money is going to go, you know, to this system and that system will be, I mean, perhaps that will be a bit of a form system, which is not going to be good for, for, for that either. If you know, you get a guy who becomes really good, which is kind of like FCS is these days, you know, you get a guy who's really good, an all American FCS. Well, guess what? Everybody, and their brother is going to get in line to say, Hey, we're going to recruit you to the division one level. And you're going to play uh bowl division and we're going to pay you some type of NIL. Um, Jaden Richardson talking about that coming out of Tufts that his coaches sat down with them and they, they, they support that move because they know they can't stop it. You know, it's like, it's futile for them to try to recruit. Oh no, you need to stay here. And and we developed you here and blah, blah, blah. It's like, we're not going to be able to keep you away from USC or Oregon or Utah or whoever we know you're going to leave. So what we want to do is make it a part of the process. So, it helps us still get other good players that we can find. And they're not going to feel like, oh, if I go to Tufts, they're not going to let me leave or they're going to make an issue to leave. And that his little brother is still playing um, at Tufts. So they also had another reason to say, you know, we want to try to keep him around as long as possible too. So we're going to keep Jaden in, uh, you know, good standing with us and, you know, we'll help him go through this process of transferring. But yeah, they, all of this is, um, it, it definitely hurts the quality of the game. Um, The NFL was very smart. I mean, even from a safety standpoint, but very smart to keep Maurice Claret out of the NFL, Mike Williams, that was a dopey move from them. Um, And it would have, and it would just been bad for the NFL. Like it would have taken years for people to figure out like high school players don't belong here. They need, you need that development. You need to get better. Like we want the best. We want to showcase the best. We want to have guys that can pass the ball and Be accurate. We want guys that can tackle. We want guys that are good. How does that happen? Well, you've got to get that fundamentals against better competition, gradually better. And that's what the college game is for. Uh, But here, you know, when you come into, you know, whether you can sustain an economic system um, at that level, um, the major league, minor league system is is so much different because it is supported by the NBL. You know, it is funded by the NBL, um, MLB, excuse me, NBL. MLB, uh, just as uh, with the the D leagues with NBA, you know, they're funded um, a lot from the professional systems because they're farm systems. You know, you bring people through it. And like you said, with the Orioles player, the Orioles has him at a minor league system, which they own. Essentially, as I, uh, I would understand it. And so they bring him through there and, you know, Chattanooga or whatever little podunk town they have these minor league teams. I mean, maybe that is just what's going to happen with with, uh, with college football. Eventually, it's like it's got to. Kid, these kids want to get paid, um, and they want to get paid immediately, and that's going to be what moves the needle. Then that's just the way it's going to have to develop, and uh, like the universities
1: are just going to say, "Yeah, sorry, we're we're not going to we're not going to just not down with that." All right, Gerard, I think we've gone far enough on this topic that you could talk for seventeen hours straight on. And maybe you will for the mythical 24-hour live stream if we ever do that. But I have to move us on to the end of our podcast. We're at three hours plus uh, for my sanity. I'm kind of debating not doing listener questions. We don't have a ton. But because Eddie's voicemail has been sitting in this inbox for two weeks, I think we're going to do this voicemail And then we're going to get out of here. Just a reminder, you can email us a question at usc, or not usc, podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite, Cilantro Boys, Recruiting Podcast, what have you, and it'll go to my inbox. So, Gerard, we're going to do this voicemail. We know who it's from. Will he be running? I assume so, because Ryan titled it Eddie Running. So let's get through this question And let's get out of here for another three-plus-hour addition to the the Composite Two-Star Recruits podcast library of content. So here we go. Let's get to this question.
0: Hello, cilantro boys. Eddie from Orange. Coming to you, it's a launch. Just a little bit over two miles into a uh, 5K. This morning. Um, feeling better? Still had a little bit of cough, but bronchitis has cleared up. Here's a question, Gerald. looking um, so you know the depth chart you feel like yesterday, on, uh, last year on defense. You know they run uh, a depth chart, two defensive linemen, two outside linebackers, you know, three inside linebackers, including a fan. Where do you think that leaves someone like Jamel Mohammed? Is he going to end up having to play the Sam? Um, he's a little short to play outside linebacker in this team. So just want to know what your thoughts were. Uh, thanks. Bye. Thanks, March.
1: Sounds like he's running through an aquarium. <laughs> <laughs>
2: 35k. 5K. I mean, congratulations to him. Coming off of bronchitis,
1: you can't keep a good man down. Can't um, keep a good man down. If you didn't hear that question, he basically asked what – No, I heard it. I heard no, it. no. I, I just mean for the listeners.
2: Oh, okay.
1: I, I don't care about you. I know you. <laughs> I know you. I know you. But basically he was asking what role does Gerard see for a guy like Jamil Muhammad who doesn't have the traditional length of a – Outside linebacker. He's about six foot one, if that. So, yeah, Gerard, I've thought about this too. Where does a guy like Jamil Muhammad fit into the scheme? Him being a more, you know, a shorter linebacker, edge rusher kind of guy.
2: Well, interestingly enough, it's not a guy like Jamil Muhammad. is Jamil Muhammad, right? It's, it's a specific profile as a recruit. And looking at this defense, or defenses like it, when you look at the Baltimore Ravens, or you look at what Mike McDonald was doing his one year at Michigan, the outside linebackers and the rush ends are long. They're six four, six five guys that are two hundred sixty pounds, right? So Jamil Muhammad is like six one and a half, maybe he's like two hundred forty, maybe two hundred fifty pounds. Um, I will say what Danton Lynn did more with less is with UCLA, one guy that you might have seen in that defense that did not fit the profile was Carl Jones. Carl Jones was actually listed as a defensive lineman on UCLA's roster, and he was a senior, and he was 6'2", 230, 35 pounds. So, you know, Danton Lynn used him as uh, sometimes a stand-up five technique, um, used him a lot in the situations where you would run that two four five nickel. And so I think, you know, he'll use J- Jamil Mohammed as the same and, and kind of really a little better because he's a little bigger. Um, he's probably a little more natural pass rusher. Uh, Carl Jones was a weird tweener that played like some safety in high school. I think he's out of Bakersfield, if I recall, watching film and then kind of moved up to linebacker. But he didn't really anchor very well because he's just not very big. Uh, Jamil Muhammad can can anchor more. And I think what will happen is Jamil Muhammad is just going to become a bit more of a specialist for USC. Can't see him being a guy that they're going to play a lot in that sort of three-four front that they have against 11 personnel. Um, I think you're going to probably see him more in the 2-4-5, and he'll be one of those outside guys. But he'll be in there rushing downs, third downs, 10s, third down and nine. And, you know, again, not the pro-typical – type of outside linebacker for that defense. But that's the good thing about DeAnton Lynn. I mean, he's done it without the prototypes. He's done it without the ideal profile players for that particular defense.
1: Did you get cut off? Did I lose you?
2: No, I'm done. Very straightforward question. I I don't understand.
1: I don't understand. What do you mean you're done?
2: (laughs) I'm done speaking on that topic. I believe I answered the question in full.
1: Okay, I I don't really know what's happening. I don't know if he's like pranking me or something, but he says he's done, and that was like less than two minutes. So are you feeling okay? (laughs) I'm feeling fine, and so is Eddie in Orange. He's doing a good
2: thing, getting out there, running, exercising, trying to get away from this potential monsoon that will drown him. So he's trying to get his run in. I feel you, Eddie. Appreciate your contributions to the podcast and to the pair of style. And uh And, yeah, I think Carl Jones is kind of an interesting, um, you know, point of what D'Anton Lincoln do with players that are not necessarily the prototypical players that you would see in that type
1: of Rex Ryan defense. I'm still... I'm still very confused as to Gerard giving the shortest answer. Well, let's get to some other questions questions then. Nope, we're good. good. I'm going to to bank those questions for next week. I apologize, but I just just can't. It's been a very long day. I just can't. You can handle this three hours. You'll be fine without these, these four questions that have gone unanswered. I did want to comment back on my earlier point about Boston College and Maryland. They were number two in the nation. They lost to Florida State the week before they played Maryland. They were number eight when they came to College Park. We beat them 42-35. When was that? What time of the year was
2: it snowing in Maryland?
1: November 10th.
2: Okay, so a little later than when USC will be there.
1: Yes, 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 yes. It usually snows like in January, randomly in February sometimes, and towards the end of December. Those are the times I remember it snowing the most um so yeah and they finished the season number 10 in the country in the ap so they lost those back-to-back games then they lost to virginia tech in the ACC championship and then beat michigan state in the citrus bowl so 11 and three you know that was a great win that was a great win that's what i remember the most one of the memories i have most when i think about my uh my days going to maryland games as a kid But I'm going to end it there because this isn't a Maryland podcast. It's a USC podcast. Gerard, thank you again for all you bring to this podcast. As always, thank you to the listeners for listening to this podcast. Next time we talk will technically be National Signing Day, so maybe we'll have some good things to talk about. We'll we'll figure it out, and we'll recap all that went on over the weekend. We'll talk about Pylon. We'll have some interviews from the visitors from this week, so – Lots coming up for us, me and Gerard, five stars only, JP and Connor. So, yeah, recruiting, picking up, at least the offseason. So we will catch you next time on Composite Two-Star Recruits.
0: Yeah, Flapper sucks!